Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, February 6th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. We begin the morning show with some sad news. I remember when I saw the first picture of Steve Jobs sick. I mean, Jobs was kind of a distant, mystical figure. You know, he wore the, um, you know, Josh, he wore the, uh, the black turtlenecks. And he would introduce the latest gizmo that Apple had come out with at their annual meetings and whatnot. But other than that, most people suggest, I don't know this, that he was kind of rude, a little bit antisocial, kind of a jerk, to be honest, but brilliant. I mean, no doubt about it, an absolute brilliant, innovative mind, somewhat of a jerk. Um, I believe this for whatever reason, and this would be, psycho babble to the extreme i believe some of those guys that have this unique quality and i don't know exactly what i don't have it but they're able to innovate and invent and come up with elon musk and peter Thiel started paypal when they were like 22 or 3 years old um steve jobs and bill gates even says jobs was the most brilliant person at that time you know what those guys all have in common they're borderline anarchist but they really are. They, they, I don't know. There's something about, I mean, is it high IQ? Is it, you know, knocking down the barriers? Is it uh, just creating things that people, what did Jobs say? You know, the beauty of Apple is we created things that people didn't even know they, they needed or wanted. Um, I mean, I have no idea why that is, but it seems to me all those guys don't do real good at following rules. Steve Jobs, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk. I mean, I'm sure I'm leaving out some others. Um, they just kind of, um, I mean, I don't think they run out and say, Hey, I hate government. And I'm an anarchist, but I think their genetic makeup is that of a, is it, is it Rev? Is it, I'm too smart and I don't need dumb government officials telling me what to do. <laughs> I mean, let me invent the Apple phone. Let me figure out an online payment app. Let me do this without some, I don't need a bureaucrat that graduated from, you know, some Ivy league institution telling me, uh, what to do and how to do it and where to do it and when to do it. Um, I don't know. It seems to be all of those people. Anyway. Probably so. Well, I mean, why am I talking about Steve Jobs? The, the, the day that I saw Steve Jobs, and I think some of you would probably know what I'm talking about, there was a kind of a photo leak of um, him going somewhere. He refused conventional treatment. I mean, Jobs basically said, I'm going to a voodoo specialist or a root doctor kind of thing. Um, once again, a little bit anarchist. I'm doing things my own way. I don't need, you know, the best cancer doctor in the world at, Stanford Medical or Harvard Medical, a Duke Medical. I'm going to this innovative mind, uh, you know, who's doing things different than anybody else says. A little bit like, okay, the government says here's how you treat cancer. Here's a guy that doesn't obey the gut. That's the guy I'm going to. I just think there's something there um, that we could study about. I mean, it's it obviously it's extremely high IQ and pushing the limits. But um, but I remember seeing Steve Jobs, a picture at a buddy of mine. That would have been a Jobs devotee. I mean, he really, you know what I mean? He, he was devoted to Jobs. I mean, if Jobs said something, uh, pay attention to him. What did he say? Uh, what did he do? What, what did he invent? Um, and and so, so we go to work one day. Uh, I don't know. We go to lunch one day. He's a friend of mine. And I said, hey, man, you see that picture of Steve Jobs? Yeah. He's taking some kind of um, off-the-beaten-path treatment. And they say this will happen and that that will happen. And I remember thinking to myself, nah, your man's dying. I mean, I don't give a damn what his IQ is. I don't hear how much money. I don't care if everyone's Apple or not. I mean, the rules apply. The rules of death. 
you know, and then your earthly existence ending apply to every one of us. I don't care what amount of money we have in the bank or how innovative or important we think are, we are to humanity. Uh, but he had convinced himself that Jobs was in that dire strait or in that dire condition because he was taking this crazy, advanced, aggressive treatment. And I would just remember saying, you can believe that if you'd like, but I mean, I know what a man looks like when he's dying, and that man is dying. When I saw Toby Keith sing in December at one of these award shows, I mean, it gave me the same look. I mean, it breaks your heart. He's 62 years old. Um, he was a country music phenom at one point in time. Should have been a cowboy. Remember that? His career progressed. He was very patriotic, um, very military-oriented. Um, we'll put a boot in your it's the American way, um, kind of a good old boy to some degree. But when I saw him on that stage and he's saying, don't let the old man in, I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, you won't see him long. I mean, you just won't, you know, he won't be around very long. Well, he's taking this advanced treatment. You know, the advanced treatment does this. And advanced, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not a doctor and I'm not trying to be negative, but, but I think by the time he turns 60, you kind of know what death looks like. You know whose door Death is knocking on, and it was obvious to me it was knocking on Steve Jobs' door when I saw that uh, picture. It was obvious to me that death was knocking on Toby Keith's door. I mean, obviously God can provide a miracle if he chooses, but Toby Keith looked like a man I'm nearing the end, and what more appropriate song to kind of remember him by in his last moments than Don't Let the Old Man In. Wrote it for Clint Eastwood, who at 93 years old, he has Clint Eastwood one day, I mean, the story is he asked Eastwood one day, um, he had a cameo in a movie that Eastwood was producing. He said, hey, man, you're 90, and you're still producing movies. Why? I mean, I know you've got plenty of money. I mean, you can't feel that good every day. Why do you continue coming to work every day? And he told him, don't let the old man in. I mean, if you let the old man in, he'll come in, and you'll sit down, and then you'll lay down, and then you'll stay down, and a day turns into two days, and two days turns into a week, and a week turns into a month. And the next thing you know, your faculties begin to decline, and I'm just not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be the guy that retires and sits down and then and then lays down, and then a day turns into a week, week turns into a month, and I become, you know, much less the man I was uh, when I thought I wanted uh, to retire. And that kind of motivated me. I think we may have played a little bit of that song over the air one day because if you get to a certain age, you begin, con- I don't know, contemplating or considering the next however many years and what you want those to look like. And I think there's a fork in the road. I want to stop work. I want to keep working. There's some that want to stop work. I mean, there's some that have jobs in the government. Largely, they count days. Uh, the pensions are pretty well gone. I mean, we don't have many people who retire because of the pension. I mean, you start a business, build a business, sell a business, put up a bunch of money. You know, you wait on Social Security and let that supplement some of the income, money you've saved over the years. You sell a piece of property. Your family leaves you a little bit of money. But there's a multitude of ways you can take that, that you know, fork in the road that says I'm not working any longer. That fork scares the daylights out of me. I mean, that fork scares the bejesuses out of me. I mean, that fork in the road that says, okay, if I go this way, I'm not working anymore. I mean, I'm financially not wealthy, but, you know, secure. I'm, I'm hypothetically saying if you get to that road, and you start playing out the finance, and you go, well, I mean, we got this, we got that, we could have this, we could have that. Uh, you're dependent on a lot of things that you don't control. One of the wisest men that I've ever known in my life, um, and I'd call his name, but he doesn't like his name to be thrown about, 
but someone who's had an influence on my life post my father uh, passing away one day just on just I, mean, I didn't solicit a comment he just basically unsolicited said let me tell you something yes sir earn a paycheck for as long as you can what do you mean I just I mean that earn a paycheck for as long as you can and then he would famous you know him Rev and you know who I'm talking about but he'd say you go to that gym you stay in good shape so keep your mind sharp and go to work just keep earning a paycheck for as long as you can and I don't know why but America at some point in time in its recent evolution and existence decided that you know if, if the quicker I can get away from work and the quicker I can get away from having to be somewhere, gainfully employed, making a paycheck, the better off my life is. Three days a week, I go to the gym and I leave here. I mean, I schedule my days around, um, you know, the 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 post ten o'clock part of my day includes two hours in the gym. I, I don't go the same time every day, um, but recent uh, recently, my afternoons have been real busy. So when I leave here, I go straight to the gym, and there are a lot of older people there who are not working, and I just wonder um, if they're happy or not. I mean, it's none of my business. I mean, it's none of my business how much money you got, how much money you need, you know, what you're doing with the rest of your life. But, but Toby Keith saying, don't let the old man in, and I've just made it. I mean, a lot of our listeners – I mean, we know the demo. A lot of our listeners are beginning to contemplate life with work, life without work. Um, I'm raising my hand as one of those who hopes work is a part of my life for as long as I live. Now, I hope it's not as mandatory as it is today. <laughs> I hope it's a little more optional. I'm about I, waking up at 4.30. Well, I, mean, I, I just hope an occasional Friday afternoon, <laughs> you know, an occasional Monday morning, a long weekend uh, more frequently. I just think work is a part of our human existence. I mean, I think the Bible speaks of work, you know, b- being productive, um, not having idle hands. I mean, just staying busy, keeping your mind, your body occupied, earning a paycheck certainly doesn't hurt in the, uh, in the status of things. But, you know, Toby Key dead at the age of 62. The last thing I remember, I mean, I should have been a cowboy, would have been one of his, one of his iconic hits. Uh, what was that song, the response to 9-11? Oh, yeah. I, we'll I put a even, boot in your yep. uh, welcome That's to the red, iconic white, line. No, no question yeah. about it. Welcome to the red, white, and blue. Um, my daddy flew a flag in his front yard till the day that we died. I mean, he was a, a country music superstar without question, but I'll always remember him standing on that stage singing Don't Let the Old Man In when it appeared, um, as Steve Jobs did to me, he was on um, his last leg. So Godspeed to Toby Keith and his family. Um, he was very involved in anything that had to do with patriotism in the military. One of the wounded warriors. I mean, he was one of the original spokespeople for uh, the wounded warriors. So at 62, um, were you surprised when you heard the news, Rev? I was not. Nah. You know, I was sad, you know, too young and he's iconic. But he's know. kind of a big guy. Yeah, but he's always a kind of a big husky guy, sure. look like a football player, and to see him, a shadow of his former self, was just a little bit upsetting. Yeah. A little bit upsetting yeah. to me. I think remember he had the red solo cup. I mean that mm-hmm. became like a, a thing. He, he had something to say after he performed at that recent music award when he sang "Don't Let the Old Man In," because um, he was really thin. 
I mean, obviously he lost a lot of weight, the sickness and disease and, and treatment, I would imagine, uh, that's what happens to you when you, when you have that, when you find yourself in that, in that place. But he said, you know, I never thought that I'd be accused of wearing skinny jeans. And I'm thinking about, no, skinny jeans are a style, but he was having to wear, you know, he probably wore, you know, just big jeans because he's a big guy. And all of a sudden he's a shadow of his former self. And it was sad. It was sad for me to watch somebody so full of life appear to accept. I mean, there was some resolve about it. He appeared to accept that, hey, probably won't do this many more times, but um, but here's somewhat of a of a goodbye. So once again, 62-year-old country music icon, Toby Keith, um, Godspeed to uh, he and his family. 843-661-0937 is the number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, good morning. Good good morning. Uh, great news, Ken. Uh, the uh, Republican nominee for president and uh, our 47th president of the United States, President Trump's coming back to South Carolina, and he's coming back to the great PD this coming Saturday. We'll have a get-out-the-vote rally and uh, just a great thing for South Carolina and a, a great thing for the PD area. Good deal. Do we know where, when the public invited? You know any details on it yet, Verd? Uh, he will be in Conway, South Carolina, and I would assume it's going to be at the Coastal Carolina Complex. Okay. Uh, no, you don't know the time of the day yet. Uh, President Trump will probably be in around two to two to three o'clock, I think. Okay. Uh, and, gates, and, I think, will open, gates. I think it'll open around uh, eight o'clock, uh, 11, 11 o'clock in the morning. I think. And the public is invited. I would guess so. It's a get out the vote rally. Yeah. If the public, if you're having a get out the vote rally, the public getting invited that much of a get out the vote rally, is it? Yeah. Thank but you, Bert. Anyway, uh, uh, Appreciate it. Um, 843-661-0937 is our number. So Trump coming to Conway and we knew he was coming. I mean, I think we knew he's coming either the 10th, or 14th. So they must've landed on the 10th, um, in Conway, South Carolina. We'll get some details. Um, Verd kind of hit the high spots there. Saturday is Saturday the tenth. Make sure I'm right here. Uh, February tenth, uh, I think it is. Saturday. I was, okay, yes. I was told tenth or fourteenth. Yep. So they've landed on the tenth. Trump will be in um probably flying to Myrtle Beach. I would imagine go to Coastal Carolina and um and Coastal and, Carolina's HTC Center. Okay, and have a, a full fledged get out the vote um, extravaganza uh, as Nikki Haley's touring around around the state. This is kind of an interesting moment for me. Um, I thought about it last night. Actually, uh, I worked on something Sunday, posted it yesterday on Facebook. Uh, I get really frustrated with Facebook. I'm not anywhere near as bothered with Twitter. I mean, I got in a spat yesterday with a guy, um, a less than conservative person about my opinion, their opinion of the border deal. Um, I mean, the liberal, you try not to insult, but the liberal forces you to insult because they just insult, glad you're not in office any longer. Uh, our mutual friends say you're reasonable. It's, it's to, you know, and then you make a Jefferson reference. They bring up, it's, it's just, I mean, it's so aggressive. I mean, I'm not afraid of it, but I don't know how productive or constructive it really is. But Facebook, I'm telling you guys, Facebook is hell bent on not allowing some opinions to make their way to the forefront. I mean, they just aren't. You want to wish Josh a happy birthday? 500 likes. You want to wish your your daughter a happy graduation? 500 um, likes and thumbs up and, 
you know, just kind comments. But if you want to try to dig in to the political commentary and narrative, and it seems you're supporting Trump, it seems you're arguing that Trump is a better candidate than anybody else. I mean, you're in Facebook jail. I mean, I've never been locked out of Facebook. I've never been put on restriction or probation from Facebook. I don't think I've ever said anything controversial enough. Um, but but I'm telling you, the content the content moderators are hard at work, and some of the amplification of some's uh, some and censoring of others or or tamping down of others is alive and absolutely um, well. Sometimes my comments are a bit flippant. Sometimes I give a little more serious effort to the written word. Um, yesterday, when I posted on Facebook my feelings about the election, I mean, it was a little more intensely thought out. I mean, it was not something I just kind of, hey, give me, I got five minutes while I'm waiting on my food. Let me post something here. I mean, it was, I mean, I, I methodically went through what I believed, and we used the reference yesterday. Maybe we didn't do it on the air, Reb. Uh, one of the iconic drug drum feels of all mm-hmm. time is yeah, in the air tonight. Um, there's a lyric, well, I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. I mean, I saw Nikki Haley's rise and, and, and ascent to political stardom. I mean, I was there. I mean, I, I remember her giving a hundred speeches. She heard me give a hundred speeches. That would have been in 20 in 2010. I knew Nikki was struggling. I mean, I knew that she was not raising a lot of money. Her polling was not very good to the point of Robert Cahaley and I being concerned that she may drop down to the lieutenant governor's race. You had Gresham Barrett, a sitting member of Congress, Henry McMaster, a sitting AG, Andre Bauer, a sitting lieutenant governor. Um, you had a couple of other, I don't want to call them secondary candidates, but I mean, you got a sitting AG, sitting lieutenant governor, sitting member of Congress, and Nikki was, I mean, a House member, but not a consequential House member. So I watched the early days of her campaign because we're campaigning together. I mean, she could have given my speech. I could have given hers. There were four running for governor, three running for lieutenant governor. And we were in the same Burgess Senate, some of the get out the vote. I mean, we're in the the GOP meeting in Greenville County. We're at the, you know, the first Tuesday club, the Rotary, the the Lion, wherever they let you speak. I mean, it's just a little bit like Bruce said when he started the East Street Band. Where did you play? Everywhere. I mean, everywhere. (laughs) Bar mitzvahs, uh, grand opening of of auto parts stores, <laughs> you played everywhere to hone your craft and get paid really and truly. So, um, I mean, we gave speeches everywhere you could imagine. So I saw with my own two eyes up close and personal, Nikki Haley become a relevant and consequential, uh, political figure. Uh, I didn't stay long enough, not my doings theirs, but I didn't stay long enough to pass judgment on whether she was a good governor or not. I mean, I've heard some say she was. I've heard some say she was not. But, um, but I, you know, I was not serving as her lieutenant governor long enough to really kind of, okay, you know, I would have probably done this or I probably would have. I mean, I was fending off the sharks, if you, if you will, because I'd put a little blood in the water. And when that's the case, you're not paying much attention to what somebody else is doing. You're trying to keep your hide intact, um, so to speak. But, um, but I do think that I can offer – an interesting perspective because, as Phil Collins says, uh, I saw it with my own two eyes. I mean, I didn't read about it. I didn't study it. I didn't uh, hear it second or third hand. I mean, I was there. I mean, I, I was from me to rev away from Nikki when Sarah Palin came at the crescendo of the Tea Party and endorsed Governor Haley. And uh, Nikki's campaign kind of took off. And she eventually dispensed of an Andre Bauer, a Gresham 
Barrett, a Henry McMaster won that primary in a runoff, I think, against Gresham. Um, and the rest, as we like to say, is histoire. So um, I, I do think I can offer an interesting perspective. But I don't know that we've ever had as much contrast as we have in these two choices. I mean, the campaigns, I talk a lot about the Republican base and the Republican donor in kind of an asymmetrical relationship. The campaigns of Haley and Trump are asymmetric. I mean, one is this and the other is that. And this and that aren't, I mean, they're just not close to one another. Um, Which is kind of what disappointed me about her campaign or what has disappointed me to this point. Uh, because she did have a choice, in my opinion. She could have tried to bend the the less Trump America first candidate. I think she might have, she she would have been able to eke out some credibility there. Well, I mean, credibility. I think she's got credibility. I think what she did was her own path forward. You'd not. Yeah. I mean, what DeSantis tried to do was, and that this is going to be the most complicated situation any Republican finds himself in. What is too much Trump? What's not enough? I mean, Trump is a political blunt instrument. He's a political force of nature. And I think what Nikki did was say, okay, DeSantis is trying to be just the right amount of Trump, just the right amount of America first. But as long as Trump's there, why settle for a watered-down version when I can have the original article? So Nikki said there are some that don't want any part of America first. They don't want anything to do with, with Donald Trump. So I'm going to be their kind of option B. Um, and it worked. I mean, she's the last person standing in the way of the unlikely third primary victory of, uh, of Donald Trump. I mean, Trump wins the primary in 16. He wins it by default in 20 because he's the incumbent president. And then he wins again in 2024, but I mean, he's going to win. I don't know by what margin. I don't know when the inevitable will happen, but I mean, he's going to win, uh, the nomination. I just think Nikki, I mean, I, I, some people believe this and I don't know. Some people believe that Nikki's strategy has always been be the last person standing alternate to Trump. And when Trump gets convicted, the, the RNC looks to you. The problem there with Nikki's philosophy, and I don't know who she's taking advice from. Um, I mean, Nikki kind of blazes her own trail. Nikki walks. Nikki's very ambitious, very focused, very dedicated to the belief that there's always a way. Um, you know, uh, I, her book was no is not an option. Bit corny to me, but I mean, you get the um, the cliche. I just think Nikki believes that there's there's no downside to be the last person standing other than Donald Trump. No matter what path I've got to declare, no matter what course I've got to take, no matter what my my agenda has to be, if I can be the last hope that the establishment has in beating Donald Trump, there's intimate value in that. I mean, there, there's long-term value. I'll always have a seat at the table because I fought the good fight. You know, I stood against him longer than anybody else has ever stood against him at a primary, and she believes she'll get rewarded for that. I still believe that if I'm Haley and I believe there's a path forward being the darling of the donors, I'm not reading the electorate. I mean, I, I don't know how Trump reads the electorate. I don't have any idea how Haley reads the electorate. I read the electorate two to one. I mean, I can take the donor's money and be well-funded, and I can run television ads in states that I'm going to lose by 20 percentage points, and there's some, you know, there, there, there's some yank to that. I mean, there's some, I mean, do you think more or less of DeSantis or Haley? That would be kind of an interesting question. Ask the Republican base voter. 
You'd rather have DeSantis or Haley. I mean, I think the Republican base voted today says DeSantis. But DeSantis isn't running anymore. I mean, he's out of the race. So you could argue Haley made the best decision because she's still in the race and Ron, Ron DeSantis is not. She's well-funded. I mean, at this moment in time, she's a better-funded candidate than Donald Trump. I mean, right now, Haley has more cash on hand than Donald Trump. I mean, Trump's struggling to raise money and to pay legal bills. Haley's going to be extremely well-funded, but I think the misalignment, the asymmetrical relationship that her being the darling of the donors and uh, and the base being just somewhere kind of an anti-donor movement. I mean, it really is. It's kind of an anti-donor sentiment that the Republican base finds itself in today. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is the number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jeff in Chesterfield. Good morning. You're on. Good morning. Uh, Ken, did you get a chance to listen to the uh, or participate in the uh, phone-in uh, deal with Russell Fry last night? I did not. Well, uh, I was at the shop working, and uh, I got a call, you know, and uh, an invitation to participate. So, I, you know, I hung on the line. I tried to get through, but I couldn't. But uh, – something you said uh, you said several times in the past and it, it really rang true with me last night as i listened to some of these dean bats call in and uh it seemed that every call that came from myrtle beach or conway or down that way people were were uh they, they the callers were chastising russell fry they were just giving him a hard time and it came to it dawned on me that these were damn yankees that had moved to South Carolina to enjoy our low taxes, our sunshine, and, and, and good weather. And they brought their dadgum blue state uh, beliefs with them. And, you know, and I've heard you say that before, and I never thought much about it. But uh, after, that, after, that, uh, after that program last night, I, I came to realize that what you're saying is the truth. And we don't need that kind of crap. If, you know, if, I don't mind people moving to South Carolina, but leave your blue state beliefs where you came from. It's just it, it sort of it sort of irritated me. I never was able to get in. I was wanting to, I was wanting to comment on that, but you know, I never did get through. But anyway, what, what's your thoughts on that? Thank you. Pre- well, appreciate that. Um, I mean, Horry County's red. I mean, it's Trump country. I mean, I've seen some numbers out of Horry County on Donald Trump. Um, I mean, if you're Trump's guy in Horry County, you're okay. Um, the problem with the coast of South Carolina, there's a weird theory out there, and I don't think anybody's ever dug into this like it needs to be. Um, when I ran in 2010, it was the Bob Jones impact of the upstate. I mean, it was the upstate, upstate, upstate. That's where all the Republicans are. It's a very evangelical-leaning vote. Um, I mean, I'd use the word on Newsmax. We're not as Jesus-y as we once were. I mean, it's still a Southern conservative state, but South Carolina is very dynamic today. I mean, it's a unique, unique place. We've got, you know, depending on what report you believe, first, second, or third fastest growing state in America, the majority of growth has been along the coast. But but I'm a big believer, and Robert kind of, I mean, Robert believes this theory as well. The more south you go on our coast, the less conservative it gets. In other words, if you started at Little River and you went to North Myrtle Beach and you went to Myrtle Beach and you went to Surfside and you went to Garden City and you went to uh, Myrtle's Inlet and you went to Litchfield and you went to Pauley's Island and you went to Georgetown, okay, I mean, you're talking about mostly conservative, not all conservative now and not evangelical. I mean, there's been a 
kind of a um, a migration of, I mean, there's a lot of Catholic there. Um, I, I got in trouble last week, you know, misrepresented the Catholic faith, so I don't want to go down down that road. Um, I'm not a theologian. I've read the Bible. I interpret the Bible. I try to incorporate the Bible in my life. But a lot of the vote on the coast didn't grow up in a Baptist church or a Methodist church. I mean, they're not they're not evangelical Christians. Um, but when you get to Charleston, when you get below Awanda, you get to Mount Pleasant, you get to Charleston, you get to Buford, Hilton Head, it's far less conservative. I mean, far less conservative. Nancy Mace has an opponent in the Republican primary, and I would imagine that um, uh, who's running against Nancy Mace? Catherine. She, yeah, Catherine Templeton, uh, who ran for governor against Henry McMaster. Um, Catherine will probably run a little more centrist campaign in Charleston, Mike Rickenboss talked a little bit about, you know, um, he can't believe the senator from Charleston is a Republican because of the things she stands for and the way she wants to, to vote on certain issues. She's what we call a Charleston uh, Republican. But when you look at the coast, I mean, there, there's no denying this, that the, the future of the grand old party in South Carolina is going to be east of I-95. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Some of the backfields happening now I mean, you got places like Ainer, you got places like Alwinda, you got places like McClellanville, um, uh, Hugie. Uh, I mean, you, you got you got all this growth, and you can't get but so close to the ocean. I mean, you can't build houses on top of houses. So some of the backfield is really starting to take place as we speak, and they're largely Republican. Now they're a different sort of conservative. I like to refer to them as Giuliani Republicans. I mean, they're Normally fiscal conservatives, but not not as not as uh, not as married to the to the social conservative agenda or ideology that dominated South Carolina politics, especially in the GOP, because of the influence of the Upstate Bob Jones University and uh, and the church had. You know, I was told early on when I ran for lieutenant governor, you don't get crossed up with the church crowd, the gun crowd, or the business crowd, and that's kind of the way South Carolina is. The church crowd. I don't want to say it's diminished, but it's not as influential in the Republican primary today because of all the growth along our coast that is less, and I don't mean this to insult it, it's less Jesus-y. I mean, it's just not as traditionally con- uh, Christian conservative as the majority of the upstate, and, you know, we're, we're still sorting uh, through a lot of that. Trump is right in their wheelhouse in Horry County. I mean, he's Trump, Trump's not a... a, a a spiritual crusader. Trump's not, you know, a Mike Pence, or I'm trying to think of some of these other candidates that make their faith kind of the centerpiece of their campaign. The problem with the Republican Party today is the majority of voters find somebody who makes faith the primary focus of their campaign. They believe they're hypocritical. I mean, when you say, you know, God led me here, God chose me, God did this, God did that. I want to thank God for this, and I prayed about that, and I prayed about this. I'm sorry. The voters are very cynical. I mean, politicians are forced voters to become very, very cynical, and they're questioning how much do you really mean when you say that, or are you just marketing yourself to me as some sort of, um, you know, moral superiority? You see where I'm headed. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's true or not, but very often in politics it doesn't matter what's true. Perception is reality in politics. And, I mean, you can like it or not. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And right now, the, the great miscalculation 
that a lot of non-Christians make about the Christian vote is the belief that we'll lose on principle. And I think the majority of Christians want to win. And if Trump gives them the best chance to win, they'll look past some of his shortcomings. They'll look past some of the personal imperfections. I mean, they believe he's right on abortion. He appointed conservative justices. They believe he's right on the border. I mean, do you believe when you go to church, you stop caring about immigration? When you give your life to Jesus, you stop caring about winning? You stop caring about crime? You stop caring about taxes? Stop caring about the budget? I mean, do you believe that Christians gather in churches on Sunday morning in good old South Carolina and pray to God to fix the government and try to believe they get a pass on it? I mean, that, that's absurd. I mean, I, I, <laughs> one of the things that I get real frustrated by the church is I think the church has conditioned people to conform to the world around them instead of challenging some of the secular orthodoxies. I really believe that. I mean, I think the church has done a good job of rearing up good young men and women. You know, the family that goes to the church and the kids are well-behaved and, and the mom and dad have stayed together for 20 or 25 years and they're in an ounce of warrior in any of them. And the church has kind of conditioned us to believe, well, let, let, let's let let's, uh, some of that rough and tumble work be left to some of the rough and tumble. I think the church requires Christian to be called in to those sort of activities. I do. I, I think the world's a better place when people leave church with more of a war mentality accepting that there are struggles in society, and we must engage in the most aggressive fashion imaginable. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Hi, you're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, I've noticed, though, that uh, Christians are a lot happier uh, warriors than the Democrats. They seem to always be miserable, and I wonder about that. But I had a question about the upcoming primary. Can Democrats vote in the Republican primary and then change back and vote Democrat in the general? They can. So I got a text message like the guy that called the other day saying, this is an important election. Make sure you vote in the right primary. And since the Democrat turnout was like less than 20, what, 24 percent? I'm wondering how many of them are going to vote in the, the Republican primary and then vote for Haley and then turn around and vote Democrat. Because I think that's how we get Lindsey Graham as our candidate every time he's up for re-election, is all the Democrats vote for him because they know they can't beat him. And we end up with no choice but to vote for him in the general. I, what, do, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, to me, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. To me, the biggest, I mean, if if the if the Republicans vote, Trump wins sixty five thirty five. If Nikki organizes an effort and some Democrats and Independents vote that historically don't support Republicans, it could be sixty forty. I mean, is there a way for Nikki to get to forty five? I don't think so. But but I'm not a strategist. I'm not a guru. It looks to I mean. Look, I'll, I'll say one thing I am emphatically sure of. You ready? South Carolina is Trump country. Let me repeat that. South Carolina is Trump country. I don't care who is running against him. It's going to be Trump country until Trump isn't running any longer. To what degree and at what percentage, I don't know. I don't have any idea. To me, some of the data I've read, some of the polling I've seen, uh, some of the conversations I've had with Robert, 
On Trump's best day, it's 65-35. On Nikki's best day, it's 60-40. And Nikki said herself that she has to do better in her home state than she did in New Hampshire, and she got 43% of the vote in New Hampshire. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Nikki bails after South Carolina if she doesn't hit 43? I don't know. you got to talk to Nikki about that. But that's a decision that she'll make with her campaign. Um, It doesn't matter. I mean, Trump's going to be the nominee. Is it going to be harder than expected? I don't know. Easier? I don't know. Um, Is Nikki going to stay in for the ballots? I don't know. She is raising money. And there's some, it's a weirdness, and I can't put my hand on it because I've never been in this position. But if someone had more money than they knew what to do with, and you hate Trump, and you kind of want to be in, in, in some sort of personal honor, you know, I, I stayed in with Nikki until the last dying breath. I mean, I knew she had no chance to win, but I wanted to stay committed to opposing Trump. I don't know some kind of inner morality that, that people are dealing with, inner ethic that someone is dealing with. I can't relate to it. But I think there's some of that out there, that, that you've convinced yourself this guy's so bad that you've got to do everything in your power. You can afford to write big checks. It doesn't change your lifestyle. Your wife isn't angry with you. It doesn't cut your kids out of their inheritance. And I think that's where Nikki's found her lane. She's the darling of the donor class. And the GOP donor class has a buttload of money. And she's getting the line share, 843 Six six one oh nine three seven. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. We have confirmation Saturday morning or Saturday, pretty much all day. I think two o'clock is when the president makes it here. But at the HT Center on the campus of Coastal Carolina University, former President Donald Trump will be attending a Get Out the Vote rally in good old South Carolina. Um, Senate border bill. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. Um, I mean, it kind of. Um, you're hearing some pros and some cons, some I'm for and I'm against it. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us in our nation's capital. Ryan, the latest I heard was that we may not have that procedural vote Wednesday. Is that true? Well, I'm not quite sure if they're going to cancel the vote, but it looks like the amount of people who might vote against it is continuing to grow. So yesterday you had uh, Senate Republicans meeting behind closed doors so the lead Senate negotiator representing the Republicans could answer questions. And coming out of that, even he, James Lankford, was saying that he might not vote for cloture on Wednesday, which would open up debate on the issue because he feels that members might need more time uh, to decide and read through this text because it is, you know, over 300 pages. It is very complicated. So he thinks that uh, there might be more time that's needed and he might vote no on it. Ryan, do we know how many hard no's there are in the Senate? Because I think some Democrats will vote no. Uh, We're looking at about three Democrats who are hard-nosed right now, and we have well over a dozen Republicans. So I think we're looking at about close to 20 Republicans who are hard-nosed right now. How much consideration will the Senate give for what Speaker Johnson said about his DOA if it comes to the House? Well, uh, the reality is is that uh, House Republicans have stayed true to what's called H.R. 2. That's the Republican-backed bill that they passed last year that essentially brings back a number of Trump-era policies like remain in Mexico, ends catch and release, resumes border wall construction. And a lot of what's in there is just not going to sit with Democrats. So that's going to get no love in the Senate, just like it looks like the Senate border bill is going to get no love in the House. Is there any chance, I mean, this is unfair to you, but I'm asking anyway, because you would know quicker than I, is there any chance that they separate Ukrainian funding and the border bill? 
it, it, it's being talked about and it's being floated, but I don't think there's any hard evidence that either Leader Schumer is going to be willing to do that or that Democrats would budge on that issue. So I don't think it, it, it's a possibility as of right now. But I have heard rumblings that people are pushing for that, and they've been pushing for that uh, for a number of months, but it just doesn't seem like leadership is on board with it. Very well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Have a good day. Hey, I appreciate you. Thank you. I mean, I, I got to believe that McConnell is probably not supportive of the bill because if it goes to the House with the Ukrainian funding attached and it fails, I mean, I'm just thinking about McConnell. I mean, McConnell's been one of the – I mean, I know James Langford's been – the lead negotiator for the Republicans, but Langford is an extension of McConnell. I mean, he's, he, I don't want to say he's McConnell's guy, but he kind of sort of is. And I'm, you're talking about too much Trump, not enough Trump. Langford's been the guy that tries to be a little bit of America first, a little bit of establishment. I mean, I respect that. you got to get things done. you got to work with, with a minority. There has to be some reason and compromise to all of government. I just don't know if the Republicans should compromise that much. I mean, I got in a in a in a kind of a um a back and forth yesterday on Twitter with a Democrat who said I'm being impractical, I'm being insensible, I'm being unreasonable. I mean, these are package deals. Well, border security doesn't have to be a package deal. I mean, McConnell and Schumer are the ones that decided to make it a package deal, and I know why McConnell's doing it because Ukrainian funding as a standalone is not going to fly. I mean, it doesn't matter what the insiders or the establishment want. But Rev, all of this comes back to all of the complications that Republican office holders find themselves in, they have this unbelievable toe and pull from the, the insiders. I mean, the lobbyists, the consultants, the, the conservative ink crowd. I mean, there's a tremendous force that they exert inside the beltway. And then you get outside the beltway and there are the voters and the voters don't care much for the donors and the donors don't care much for the voters. As we speak, donors can't get you elected. But they fund campaigns, but they make you last longer in a presidential race than you probably would have if you aren't the darling of the donors. But I think when the donors and the voters are in an asymmetric relationship, it's going to be hard to get anything done. The rank and file Republican voter does not want to spend any more money in Ukraine. But they just don't. They, they, They don't believe they're getting accountability. They don't believe that Ukraine has a chance to defeat Russia. They don't believe that Ukraine is a democracy. They don't believe that Zelensky is to be trusted. But that's where the rank-and-file Republican base voter is. So when McConnell says, well, let's do this, let's couple immigration funding, border funding with Ukrainian, and he sees the response in the House and by some of the membership of his own caucus, I mean, McConnell starts walking back his support. I'll make a prediction. If they had a vote today or tomorrow, Wednesday, if they have a vote tomorrow, McConnell's a no. I mean, that's wild. M- McConnell's a no because he's putting his Ukrainian funding at risk, and McConnell's a globalist. I mean, he's an establishment Republican. The military-industrial complex are, ca- are counting on Mitch McConnell to carry the water to get this thing across the finish line, and he's been really good at it. I mean, that's how you become minority leader and majority leader. You understand the levers, the nuts and bolts of the Senate. And he understands it as well as anybody. But there's such a force outside the beltway called the voters. And as much as McConnell would love to dismiss what the voters think and believe, he can't. I mean, his membership cannot. You can't vote for a border security bill that includes $20 billion for border security, 
and $60 billion for Ukraine and go back to your district and ask to be reelected. You can't. I mean, that's, it's inconceivable. I wish I wanted to run for Congress and someone in my district would vote for a border bill. I'm talking about a Republican. I wish a Republican would vote for the border bill that spent $20 billion of the $118 billion border security bill on border security. I mean, I'll go back through the math. You ready? $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, $2 billion for conflict in the Red Sea. What is the conflict in the Red Sea? I don't know, but we'll start one. Um, $5 billion, Indo-Pacific aggression. I mean, that's just in case China and Taiwan. I mean, that's really just kind of a, um, it's a jab at China. Hey, we're spending $5 billion on Indo-Pacific security, and then you got another $10 billion in humanitarian aid to Gaza, West Bank, and, and Ukraine. So with $118 billion, forget the language. I mean, that's confusing. Langford says he interprets some of the language to say one thing. I interpret the language to say something else. A guy on Fox News did a good job of defending some of the language in the bill. But a border security bill that cost $118 billion, that spends $98 billion on something other than border security, is not a border security bill. It's a foreign aid conundrum. It's a hodgepodge of foreign aid and assistance friendly to whom? The military-industrial complex. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Good kid, I swear. I have really, really tried. I have really, really tried, you know, to embrace this whole, you know, this Christianity thing. But I tell you, it is all I could do not to throat punch these people. They made me sick to my stomach. They're all full of crap. And and did you know, uh, somebody sent me something my wife did. You know what the CDC used to be before it was the CDC? It was, a, it was called the United, something like the U.S. Malaria, blah, blah, blah. In other words, their job was to uh, combat malaria. You know what their number one drug they were pushing? Hydrochloroquine. I mean, we're getting daggled, screwed by, I mean, can, why are they even having this bill is my next question. I mean, don't, I mean, we've had laws in America called immigration for a long, long time, you know, that, you, you were talking about the insults of the people coming into Ellis Island. Their laws right now. I mean, somebody can tell Joe Biden if I wanted Joe Biden to win, and I was in, I was controlling Barack Obama, and I said, Barack, send you guys over there to tell what he's what about the guys that, that tell that stupid idiot to close the border right now, and they're selling a call for all national guards. The point is, Biden can close the border. We don't need a damn bill. And you know what's even crazier is, like, I never thought I would be in a position to where I would have to tell, I think, my three, <laughs> the only three I have, my three Democrat buddies, here I am, the guy that was gung-ho for, and followed both of those idiot Bush uh, uh, your father and son, and all these wars. I used to believe their crap. And I got three buddies that are Democrats, and I would have to sit there and try to convince them, hey, guys, they want to spend all this money to send our group, like your grandchildren and my kids, to war. Why are y'all for that? Why in the hell is anybody for a bill, as you just said, 
get only a what is what's twenty five twenty billion out or what a, not even a third, a fifth of the money or a quarter of the money is going to border security, but it ain't even about border security. If you look at what they're doing, then they got a damn thing to do with border security. The whole thing is a damn farce. And we're and we're idiots to sit there and believe anything otherwise. I mean, every time you turn around, these evil bastards are, are screwing us over. I mean, every damn time. And every time I sit there and pay taxes to these fools, I feel like John Gotti's got a gun to my head. I mean, I don't know what the hell it takes to get people bad in this country. Instead of us being so bad at each other, why? Yeah, but you made a point one time. What you're saying, but but the guys with the pitchforks are fighting the guys with the torches. Ain't nobody storming the damn castle, you know. And that's always but been I the plan. Th- thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I I can tell what matters to Josh if Josh lets me see his checkbook. I mean, I can tell what matters to Rev if Rev lets me see his checkbook. I mean, you can find out what's important to me if you let me if I let you see. You know, my bank statement, where do I spend my money? What matters to me? Well, I say I love uh, I love bacon, but I'm buying ham. You know, I say I love Diet Pepsi, but I'm buying Mountain Dew. You, you see where I'm headed? I mean, we, we all prioritize. We all commit our funds to things that we favor. So, I mean, forget the language in the bill. It's another foreign policy hodgepodge, and we don't need a border security bill. There are already laws on the books that say I mean, this way for government agencies to get additional funds. I mean, remember, Congress appropriates. So if the border security people, and I'm talking about border security, um, Border Patrol, uh, Department of Homeland Security, all of a sudden they see a way to get another $20 billion. I mean, we've already got laws on the books to secure the border. We've got immigration laws. We know what we should and should not do. But this is a way to get another $20 billion and get Ukraine another $60 billion. It's all about the money, guys. I've said it a hundred times, and some of you listen and some of you don't. Money's the answer. Now, what's the question? So I always, when I read one of these bills, forget what Langford said, forget what Schumer says, forget what McConnell says. I mean, they're actors in a play. I mean, they're playing a game with your taxpayer dollars. I go straight to the expenditures. What, what is the bottom line here? So, so Langford says, well, you're miss." You're, uh, you're, you're misinterpreting what the statute actually says about 5,000 per day, you know, for seven consecutive days. I, I, okay. M- maybe I am. Um, am I misinterpreting that the, uh, the parole provision that allows the president to grant basically, I mean, 1952, I think we came up with the, um, uh, the presidential parole authority and everybody's had the ability to use that since Eisenhower if I'm not mistaken, but the the president can basically, when he chooses, grant parole to any illegal immigrant he chooses. I mean, and that's not messed around with. I mean, that's still in the bill. It's been in the bill. It's been law since 1952. So, so why aren't we addressing that? Because we have no interest in stopping illegal immigration. Um, You know who one of the biggest contributors to open borders is? I mean, I'll call them out. I don't want to, but I will. Marriott. Marriott is one of the biggest contributors to Mitt Romney's campaign. I mean, somebody's got to clean the rooms. Somebody's got to do the housework. And if you've got a million people willing to clean rooms, guess what? You can get rooms clean cheaper. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's good. I'll let the public decide what, what it should cost to clean a room. But, but Marriott, give, or Marriott gave Mitt Romney a lot of money. 
And Romney has been kind of an open border Republican. And he says, well, I mean, we're providing opportunities. Okay, you're providing opportunities. There's no doubt. But you're distorting and manipulating the labor market by allowing unskilled labor. What if the people coming across the southern border wanted 10 Ivy League institutions to run for Congress? I mean, do we really believe we'd have, you know, the millions of unvetted illegals coming into our country? Of course we wouldn't. Why? Because those people are different than everybody else is, right? I mean, the person that cleans you know hotel it. rooms for a living or picks strawberries for a living, who cares about those people really? I mean, that you know, anybody can do that. So why not find someone that'll do it for $5 an hour or $6 an hour or $7 an hour? I mean, it's un-American what we're doing to the working class. I mean, it really and truly is. It's, um, I mean, once again, if these illegals were coming to run for Congress or attend elite universities, there would be a wall as high as a sky. There would be drones with bombs. There would be crocodile, man-eating crocodiles in the, in the rivers. There's no way. But we have no interest in closing the border because the people who pay the elected officials to not enforce border policy need more cheap labor. And the Democrats believe eventually they can get some of these folks signed up to vote and they'll more likely than not vote Democrat. But never look at the language of a bill. Always go to the money. Go and see where the money is appropriated. The language is confusing. It's going to be interpreted. It'll probably be litigated over. They, they, they write it so you can't understand it. But always go to the money. Where is the money going to be spent? And they're going to spend $118 billion, $20 billion of the $118 billion is spent on border security, $98 billion is a foreign policy hodgepodge. Take a break. Back in a few. The, the, the most skilled politicians in America, yourself included, formally, we talk in circles. I mean, we never answer questions. We never give exact proposals. We write bills that confuse the general public. But the one thing you can do, and I guess this is a bit of a tutorial, when you read a bill, read the numbers. Don't read the words. I mean, the words, th these folks are brilliant at confusing you. And, I mean, Lankford can come out and offer a reasonable proposal that, you know, your interpretation of that bill is not what, what it really is. But I'm reading it. I mean, I, I'm not dumb. I mean, I read the bill. I read the part. I'll give you an example. I mean, Lankford yesterday said that we're not letting up to 5,000 people in the country illegal a day for seven consecutive days. But the Department of Homeland Security, I mean, basically says that if the number of illegals exceeds 5,000 for seven consecutive days, we are ordered to close the border. So, so I'll ask you this, Josh, what does close the border mean? Who counts is a better question. I mean, who counts the people? It's a little bit like, what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth? So who counts? I mean, is there a drone with some computer software that flies over? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Was that 10 or 12? That's 10. Uh, was that a family or not? Because we're not counting families. We're not, we're, we're not counting unaccompanied minors, and we're not counting family units. Because if a family unit, that's an unaccompanied, that would, that would create an unaccompanied minor. I mean, I, I, I guess I know how to read these bills a little bit. And the language is very ambiguous on purpose. It's intended to be litigated. Rev can interpret the bill to say one thing. Lankford can interpret it to say another. Why confuse yourself with that nonsense? I mean, if we've got laws on the books already, 
that if we enforce, we could close the border. We could close the border today if we enforce the laws we already have on the books. But this is a way to get another $118 billion out there to government agencies and foreign governments. But that's all this is. It's a money grab. It's always a money grab, guys. It's always about the money. Not some of the time. Not most of the time. All of the time. So if you want to bore yourself with reading and trying to understand the language in the bill, have at it. But the best thing to do is find the money. And in the bill, I'm sure this, Langford can say his interpretation of that is one thing. Josh can say another. Rev and I can have a different opinion. We will litigate the context. I mean, there, there are lawyers all over the world that will debate the limitations or not of a statute, the interpretation or not of a statute. But $20 billion means $20 billion. $60 billion means $60 billion. I mean, that's not abstract. That's not ambiguous. That is the number. So I automatically go in the 370-page bill, I go to the money line. I mean, all I go to, where's the money? I mean, I want to read the bill and understand it. I want to see what their intent is. I really want to see how they're trying to mislead you because they're always trying to mislead you. Of course they're trying to mislead you. If McConnell, Schumer, and Lankford get in a room, do you really believe out of that comes an honest accounting of what they're trying to do? Of course not. I mean, they're paid to mislead. They're in that room with lobbyists and consultants, and they'll draft language. They'll approve or disapprove this is too clear. Let's make it a little more confusing. Well, they usually here. put a name on the bill that seems to be the opposite of what the bill actually is. Well, I mean, never read the bill because they're not intending to do what it says in the bill. We have laws. What do we need more laws when we already have laws? Why do we need statutes when we already have statutes? This is another way to get more money. So always read how much money they're spending here, how much money. They're spending there. And we and I mean we can all agree or disagree on the text of the language. What exactly does that mean? What exactly is your interpretation of that? Nancy Mays has one. I mean, I heard her last night railing against some of the um some of the exclusions that th- she thinks should have been uh, left in the bill. But but the money is the money. And they're calling it a border security bill, and they're spending 18% of the money on border security. Only in Washington can you do that. I mean, that, that, the absurdity of that, but that's the way they work. That's what they're trying to do. Now, in the good old days, and we touched on this yesterday, Rev, in the good old days, not only were the consultants and lobbyists being in the room, when McConnell and Langford and Schumer and the consultants and lobbyists and chief of staffs made a deal, they would then go to the media, and they would tell the media, hey, there's this border security bill, and and here's what we're intending to do. I mean, here's how... We want you to tell the public this bill works. And the the media would, by and large, get on board. And the Wall Street Journal would tell a story about the bill. And the Washington Post would tell a story about the New York Times, NBC, ABC, CBS. I mean, they had kind of a, I mean, they had a stranglehold on disseminating information, therefore creating the narrative. And all of a sudden, you got Twitter, and you've got Instagram, and you got TikTok, and you got Facebook, and you got you got these conservative websites and you've got Fox news and you've got some of the podcasters. I mean, you've got Joe Rogan and, and Tucker Carlson and they're going, wow. I mean, we're spending 118 billion, 20 billions on border security. The other 98's not. I mean, explain that. How many, how many elected officials have you seen answer questions from the legacy media about that? 
I mean, it's the most obvious question. I mean, if I'm re- if I'm a reporter and I'm genuinely trying to do my job, the first question I have for Schumer or McConnell or Langford when I get out of the room and understand it, I'm going, hey, senators, with all due respect, you're calling this $118 billion border security bill, but only $20 billion is being spent on border security. I mean, it's DOA then, right? But nobody's asked that question that I've heard. Now, maybe I missed this. I don't watch a lot of the mainstream news. I mean, I know some of the websites are showing it. Some of the podcasters are talking about it. Conservative talk radio, bless our heart. I mean, we're beginning to raise awareness about these things. And that's my frustration when people say about Trump, it's time we get back to normal. I mean, there's a George Wheel article being kind of floated around in, in the ether. And it's about, you know, make America normal again. Please vote for Nikki Haley. We need to get back to normal. I mean, is that normal? What is your definition of normal? Is it normal to create a bill and call it a border security bill and 18% of the money spent on border security? Yeah, that, but that's normal. That's normal if you're in charge. I mean, that's normal if you're the king of the world. Sure, that's normal. And that's an example of what's wrong with government and why people are ticked. But we're told that we need to return to normal. Is it normal no, to tell someone that you can't get on this plane or go to that job unless you take this medicine? Is that normal? I mean, that's what I don't understand. They're talking about Trump. He's a disruptor. He's a destabilizer. Yes, absolutely he is. That's what we need in America today because nothing we call normal is normal. Is it normal to incentivize? Is it normal for taxpayer dollars to incentivize auto manufacturers to build cars that nobody wants? How abnormal is that? Is it normal to say publicly as a president that we're going to decarbonize our economy in the next 15 years? Next 11 years, I think 2035 was the drop-dead date Biden gave in 2020 uh, during the campaign. Is that normal when the burning of fossil fuels has improved a lot of humanity, probably as much as any other innovation in human history? I mean, is that normal? I mean, when George Will says, make America normal again, what is normal about America pre-Trump? I mean, is it normal to allow a minor child to enter into a medical contract with a physician to have their genitalia mutilated without parental consent? I mean, is that normal? The absurdity of the normalcy argument is just it's beyond belief to me. But, but once again, I think it convinces me even more that we've been conditioned to conform. And if a well-respected journalist with a bow tie who knows a lot of words, I mean, you got to get the dictionary to read George Will. I mean, he's one of the old hands. He's a, he's a pinnacle of integrity. He's, a, he's the guy that knows what America needs to be and needs to look like. He's highly educated. He's highly decorated. He's been around the block. He knows what Washington is supposed to do. Does George Will believe the last 20 years of America have been normal? Is it normal to increase the M2 money supply? From 15 to $22 trillion, leading to rampant inflation that average Americans can't afford the middle-class lifestyle? Is that normal? But, but Trump's a boogeyman, right? I mean, it's time we get back to normal. Guys, normal is a guise. Normal is nothing but, but something they've created to convince you to let them stay in charge. That's all normal's about. There's nothing normal about the way we've run the country for the past 20 years. Let me say it better. Ready, Pamplico Indian? Ain't a damn thing normal.
about what we've done in running and managing the country's affairs for the last 20 years, normalcy is a disguise. They're convincing you that Trump is too crazy, he's too destabilizing, he's too disruptive. We need to elect somebody who understands the normalcies of government. And there's nothing normal about the way we've run our country for the last 20 years. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, there's really a couple of, of we talked about forks in the road this morning about, you know, uh, one that leads to working for the balance of your life, one that leads to retiring and doing whatever it is retired people do. Um, I mean, I, I, we're talking about Toby Keith and life and living, um, you know, a long time or not living. Anyway, um, that fork in the road. To me, there's a fork in the road with Trump. I mean, he, Trump's controversial. He doesn't allow you to be dismissive of him. I mean, you can't. He, he, he's so in your face. He's so aggressive and bombastic and kind of forces you to form an opinion of him. So to me, the two opinions most legitimate is um, he's a threat to democracy. I mean, some have bought that. You know, the, the democracy is fragile. It requires reverence and a certain degree of thoughtfulness. And this guy's not thoughtful enough. He's not, you know, uh, he's not measured enough. He's not considerate enough he's not respectful enough for that job that job requires all those attributes and trump has none of those so because he has none of those attributes he's a threat to democracy and some have convinced themselves that he is now now i believe that trump is an indictment of the failed establishment elites who sold the american people globalism and interventionism by that i mean bad trade deals endless wars and he symbolizes an indictment of that. I mean, that, that's the road I take. That's the lane I travel. Um, I don't defend everything Trump does. I don't think you can. I think he's such a different sort of political actor. It's hard to say, well, I mean, he's right on everything and he never makes any mistakes. No, Trump is not right on everything. Trump makes a lot of mistakes, but I don't buy that he's a threat to democracy. I mean, I just simply do not buy that. I think that's a very shallow argument, a lame argument to make. I buy that the American people look at Trump and say, wow, he is a, he, he's kind of a, um, an indictment. I mean, he's a manifestation of, of, of how we feel about the establishment of elites who said all these globalist policies will make the American worker better off. All these, all these foreign entanglements will, you know, lead to a safer world. Nothing they say ever comes to realization. Nothing they say comes true. Nothing plays out as we're told it would. NAFTA is going to lead to this. GATT's going to lead to that. TPP is going to lead to this. You know what it led to? A declining and exporting of the American middle class. I mean, that's what it did. I mean, it exported the benefits the middle class of America would have gained for the past 30 or 40 years to places all over the world. That's what globalism has done. And the American worker has paid a severe and significant price. The economy is more unaffordable to the average American worker than it's ever been. And in intervention, we're told that if we do this, the world's a safer place. If we do this, the world's a safer place. Is the world a safer place today? I mean, we've intervened in about every corner of it. We've exported the American empire about anywhere we could find a chance to export the American empire. So I don't think Trump is a row, excuse me, I don't think Trump is a threat to democracy. I think he's an indictment of the people who've had the keys to the liquor cabinet for the past 40 or 50 years. And I'm a little bit like Tucker. I'm not totally opposed to a ruling class if they're real good at it. I'm not, in, I'm not opposed to hierarchies. I mean, I'm not. I want smart, diligent, capable, competent people running the country. 
And if you call that a ruling class, then call it a ruling class. If they all come from Harvard, then they all come from Harvard. If they all come from Clemson, they all come from Clemson. If they all come from Francis Mann, they all come from Francis Mann. But we created a system that rewarded pedigree and and, and to some degree not competence. It, it, it ceased to be a, mer- a meritocracy, and I think Trump is an indictment. I think the American people realize that the people they thought were good at their jobs aren't good at all at their jobs, and he is an indictment of that failed group of or failed I mean, I'll, I'll go as far as kind of a cartel of leadership that promoted globalism, promoted interventionism, and the American middle class paid a pretty damn steep price for their ideas and concepts and visions. Yeah, how's that working out yeah, for us? Yeah, let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. All I got to say is amen to that, uh, Ken. You, uh, you got that right. My father used to say, and he he remembered all the way back to World War Two, World War One and Two. So of course, but uh, he said, "You vote for a Democrat, you get a war." Well, it seems that is the case. I don't understand why it is, <clears throat> but it seems like the last uh, Republican to start a war was Abraham Lincoln, I suppose. And he did that inadvertently just by being elected. But uh, these these people, I I am concerned about. Uh, you were talking earlier about uh, the uh, Democrats that are pretended to be Republicans and uh, Republicans that aren't uh, Republicans at all. Uh, I think you have some moles in the in the uh, in the. Republican Party, and I think the chief mole that's risen to the highest level is uh, our uh, Miss McDaniel, nay Romney. I believe she's a niece of Mitt Romney, if I'm not mistaken, and I think she is uh, actively trying to uh, cripple the party. And that was a little bit off topic. But I think you're absolutely right. And uh, we have to get a handle on these people and see what they're really spending money for. Uh, certainly, we need a strong defense, and certainly we need to beef up our military where needed. But having all these pots uh, simmering all over the world, uh, these uh, um, minor conflicts, uh, one of them's liable to boil over at some time and, and start a major conflict where the, even the soccer moms are going to understand that a serious war is not a good thing. Any kind of war is not necessary, but it, sometimes it is necessary. But uh, you you don't want to uh, be uh, put yourself in a position where uh, a tragedy can happen at any time. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jacob in Florence. Hey, you're on. Yes. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I, I want to chime in on that comment about a threat to democracy. If you vote for Trump, that is a threat to democracy. You you have to understand the left and the way they speak. That what, what they're really saying is this. It's democracy as long as you vote for one of our candidates. That's what you have to read between the lines. Obviously, um, most people realize Trump is not a a threat to democracy. What's a threat to democracy is the left. So it's a warning. What they're saying is don't vote for Trump because if you do, from now on, 
we're going to control all elections. And, and you, you could really say that they're doing that already in some states, all right? And, and even here in South Carolina, we have to be careful, all right? There's, a, there's leftists uh, floating around. So that, I'm, just, I'm just chiming in on that point, and I'm, I'm interested in seeing how you view that, uh, Ken. All right, have a great day. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, see, my, my concern is it's not just the leftist. I mean, it's not just, I mean, you got a lot of insider Republicans, a lot of establishment Republicans. The majority of Nikki Haley's support is some of those who, I mean, they articulate whether they believe it or not. I don't know. I mean, I've got no idea how many of the big shots on Wall Street believe that Trump is a threat to democracy. Um, we're going to live in a very chaotic period of time because the for the establishment, and I'm talking about the Uniparty, let's say Uniparty, um, for the McConnells and Schumers of the world, to continue to hold the status they hold, they've got to control the narrative. Uh, but the establishment has to maintain its integrity, Reb. And the majority of my, the, uh, but the establishment had not maintained its integrity because they've been real good at it. Um, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady won a lot of Super Bowls because one was a, you know, a great quarterback. The other was a great head football coach. Um, I mean, they didn't have to trick people into believing that they were good. I mean, they, they were good. There's no denying that. Um, football is, I mean, it's the real world. You know, you keep score. You have a winner and a loser. Um, politics is very different. It's all in the abstract. Um, you're not certain if he's a good congressman. You're not certain if she's a good senator. You're not certain if he was a better president than the last president. I mean, you know what the record is. I'll use Gamecock basketball. Nobody expected South Carolina to be 19-3 and three in basketball. I mean, nobody saw that coming, but here they are. I mean, it, it is what it is. In politics, 19 and 3 can be 3 and 19. If you're articulate enough, if you're salesy enough, if, you're, if you've got the right forces allied and they're pushing your, your narrative. So the reason that I argue it's going to be a very chaotic period in America, the establishment are trying to maintain their integrity. They've got to have that moral authority to govern. The way they historically have done that, Rev, is as I said earlier, they control the narrative. I mean, we hand the First Amendment to some degree, but they controlled the narrative. Never argue with someone who buys ink by the barrel. Remember that. Um, and all of a sudden, buying ink by the barrel isn't that big a deal because I can be a journalist and you can be a journalist and anybody can be a journalist and you can something to go viral on Facebook or Twitter. So all of a sudden, the public say, I think those people have been lying to me for a long time. I mean, I'm talking about people who are a little bit passive about politics. They go, ah, those people, I don't know, man. I mean, that, that Vietnam thing didn't turn out like they said. That Iraq thing didn't go like they told me it would. You know, that, that shot me, and I, I don't know, that vaccine. I mean, something tells me that they're not telling me the whole story. They're not telling me the truth. So we've seen this de decentralization of media that has allowed Josh to sit at home at 8 o'clock at night and hear a 40-minute a podcast about something that makes Josh scratch his head. And he begins to wonder. Now, historically, Josh would have turned the TV off at 6.30 after the evening news, and that would have been his dose of news. And he may have, if he's a little bit more engaged, he may have picked up a copy of the New York Times or the local paper, some reprint of the Associated Press. That was controlling the narrative. I mean, we had free speech. There's no doubt about it. But we didn't have the ability to hear alternate opinions out of the mainstream opinions. And I think Trump is kind of a liberator in that regard. I mean, he says things unconventionally. He, re he acts in a way that, you know, so that's not presidential. Well, who, who gets to decide what's presidential or not? Well, I mean, historically, the media did. 
Historians sure. did. All of a sudden, Josh's opinion and, and Rev's opinion and my opinion are shaped not by five or six news sources, but rather hundreds out there that, you know, have a right. The First Amendment gives them the right to say whatever it is they choose to say. But Trump, a threat to democracy, is not just a narrative of the left. Some of the insider Republicans say that. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bold, History Chair, Francis Marion University, big fan of the Tennessee Volunteers who beat Kentucky this past week in basketball. Didn't they both? Didn't they beat Kentucky? They, they beat Kentucky Saturday night, but uh, let's, let's let's just talk about that great Saturday night game. They had that a one in good... one week, right? Ah, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe they, they were they played excellent basketball at the end of the week. I mean, really, really picked it up. But the SEC tournament, I think. I mean, the SEC season includes two <laughs> league games per week. Yeah, maybe. And that yeah. other game escapes me. <laughs> I was trying to remember that myself. Yeah. I mean, Kentucky's a blue blood. We beat them. Yeah. So yeah. what? You know, could yeah. Tennessee beat Kentucky. So what? But what again? There's something I can't remember. Yeah. Did the game Cox and Volunteers sli- play? slipped my mind as well. There was a good good game on Tuesday night. It was kind of a back and forth. And now you got to tip your hat. The Gamecocks got, got something brewing. Uh and suddenly the Tennessee's got to go to Columbia at the very, very end, the next to last game. So that might be for all the marbles. So circle your calendars. We'll get another shot at you. Uh, and it, it, Tennessee, it wasn't Tennessee's best effort. Probably left some points on the table. But Carolina did what they had to do. They they hit the free throws. They locked it down at the end. Tennessee kind of just never flipped the switch until it was too late and then just couldn't quite get over the hump. But should be a heck of a rematch. And, hey, you, you got to tip your cap. And I think if you're a, a Carolina fan, Oh, Carolina's got something, got something brewing. And as a Tennessee fan, you got to be a little nervous now. Well, but we both beat Kentucky. That's, well, it's like everybody kind of beats Kentucky now, but yeah. I was telling Bolt this, and this is a crazy statistic to me. Rick Barnes was to Clemson and went to yeah. Texas, left Texas, went to Tennessee, and apparently has just hit his stride there because they're top five <laughs> about every, I mean, they're top 10 about no, every he's, year. He's built recently. a heck of a program. Built a no really doubt. good program, a very <laughs> solid program. Tennessee is seven and one. In the last eight games against Kentucky, when Kentucky's ranked in the top ten, and Kentucky's almost always yep. ranked in the top ten, so if you play them, they're normally in the top ten. That's quite the record against one of the blue bloods when <laughs> yep. they're having a blue blood um, sort year. of year. So I want to I want to do this with you if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I mean, this is not about early American history, <laughs> but but I want to get your take on a historian. What do you make of? And and forget the primary for a second. Forget the the presidential election for a second. What do you make of the fact that Donald Trump came on the scene in 2016 as the most different candidate yeah. we've seen in modern American political history? He's, I mean, the trajectory is up and then it's down, then it's up and then it's down. But what do you make of him still being such a dominant force in politics? What, eight years yeah. after he uh, rides down the escalator? I was going to say, eight years ago, if you told me the day he comes down the escalator, in 2024, we'd still be talking about him as a potent force. Like, get out of here, man. Let's, let's bet on that. I'll, I'll take that to Vegas and and easily take your money. But yeah, few individuals have had such a long staying power in American history. He just simply won't go away. I've said it before. Oh, to be a historian 20, 30 years from now, to be able to sort of sit back and maybe from a distance sort of look at this period. I think you may have to look at it, refer to, especially if he wins again, the age of Trump. I mean, this is he. He will continue to cast long shadows. I don't think MAGA, what Trump has started, I don't think this is going away anytime soon. He has captured, he has rebranded the Republican Party. I mean, this is the Donald Trump Party, whether you like it or not. 
we've, you've talked about it before I got on there. You had a, a border bill set to get through, and all of a sudden President Trump says, uh, I don't like this. And a whole bunch of other ones, I changed my mind around that. Oh, now that I've read the bill, yeah, I, I can't I can't support this. Few individuals in American history have had so much clout and power. And again, he just refuses to go away. And he'd be a fascinating individual to kind of study uh, once he's out of office. So if you were a younger historian and you were assigned um, the <laughs> task or the, the, the job of going to figure out where this came from, the yeah. MAGA, the America First Movement, uh, you said you don't believe it dies with Trump. I mean, do you think that's here to stay for a um, a longer period of so. time? Yeah. But where does a historian start? I mean, that that's hypothetical. But I mean, yeah. if, if Bolt were given the assignment, if if somebody in in um in in you know Simon and Schuster, Simon and Schuster <laughs> said, "Hey, I want you to write a book about MAGA America first, Where would you, as a historian, start, Doctor Bolt? You probably can go all the way back to maybe like a Ross Perot and a Pat Buchanan, who are kind of like fringe candidates talking about these weird conspiracies. Weird ideas that the media quickly sort of dismissed, uh, particularly Buchanan with trade deals, uh, Ross Perot trade deals, Buchanan about strengthening the border, issues that just kind of like kind of percolated for a little while, then went away. And then here's President Trump, right, more than 20 years later, sort of resurrecting those issues, bringing them up and finding out that, hey, there's these issues got legs. These issues resonate with voters. Uh, If I talk about that, people come out. This is what they want to hear. So yeah, you probably go back to the to the early 1990s when you can kind of start to see the people just kind of getting sick and tired of the status quo. Ross Perot comes in, if you remember, in in 92 as a third party candidate, was expected right until he dropped out, maybe to upset the apple cart and maybe to possibly carry some states and really upset the balance. For whatever reason, he got out, then got back in. But it's a story for but he still got 18 percent of the vote. Exactly, preventing electoral votes, but he got 18 percent. And much to Clinton's chagrin, Clinton to get it didn't get a majority of the popular, which always kind of stuck stuck in his craw both times in '92 and '96. So it was sort of like that. The the blueprint for an outsider, a non traditional candidate, was there. We kind of forgot about it for 20 years, and then here comes President, or then candidate Trump, and again he he was the classic outsider, uh, a for, a guy who had been a Democrat for most of his life realized that the Democratic Party had left him. Uh, a lot of ideas that he believed in coincided with the Republican Party and certainly rebranded. I mean, that's the that's the big story, how he just sort of took the, the Republican Party from really just being evangelicals, Wall Street businessmen, uh, and brought in a bunch of working-class businessmen or working-class guys from all across the Rust Belt, guys who had been for generations Democrats and now left that party and are here in the Republican Party to stay. In the grand scheme of things, as it relates to presidents throughout history, winning and then losing, maybe, and then winning again. <laughs> See what you did I mean, there, surely nice. that puts him in rare air. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I mean, he didn't write the Declaration of Independence. He was not the first American president. He didn't fight in the Revolutionary War. He did not attend the Constitutional Convention. I mean, I hold those folks in high regard because they were the founders yeah. of a nation that I benefited and enjoyed um, the amenities up, but but where does Trump land if he indeed wins again in twenty four? Well, again, he'll be just the second president to have served two non consecutive terms. He'll go along with Grover Cleveland from the great city of Buffalo, New York. I might add right there, but he's already kind of in rarefied air. Uh, there's not that many people, not that many individuals throughout American history who are on a national ticket more than two times. Right? Trump says this is going to be 2016, 2020, and 2024. Usually when you lose in American politics, we cast you aside like you're a leper. Say, no, 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 just go out to pasture. Even if it's a close close election, right, and maybe there was some shenanigans or funny things going on. Say, no, 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 man, you're, you lost. We're done with you. 
Uh, <laughs> Trump's defeat in 2020 perhaps did him more political good than harm. So that's another thing that makes him so intriguing uh, to kind of study and look at. Again, he's just the message. It, he just has a way of connecting a Manhattan businessman with your industrial workers, your blue-collar workers, right, the guys who just want to, you know, work the 40 hours, crack open a cold one, listen to some Springsteen. You wouldn't think they'd be charging the gates of hell for a Manhattan real estate developer, but yet there, it's just an incredible appeal that he has. At the center of the Trump movement, the the America First movement, is populism. No. Does populism wane? I mean, does populism come and go throughout American history? There's sort of a cyclical nature in American history. Every 30, 40 years, right, you will, will sort of tap into that populist vein uh, as well. But certainly the Trump has popped the cork on the bottle. And this, this toothpaste, if you will, you're not putting it back in. I don't think this is going back. Uh, again, the elites, I, I think they're on notice that the, the good times are up. They're going to have to fight, scratch, and claw to hold on to everything that they're used to. They're going to have to re-earn the trust of the American people. What Trump has broken, they're not going to be able to put back together overnight. And I believe his appeal is wider than the media will lead you to believe. I was in the gym yesterday, and I, I very often I'll listen, and the conversation will go to politics, and I don't say a word. I'll just listen and let some of these other folks talk. And there were two young black guys in the back of the locker room, and something came up about he was retired from the military. He's 41 or two or three years old. I think he went to the military when he got out of high school. I've seen it there a hundred times. Um, so I let them talk. I didn't say a word, just heard them talk. And it, the conversation led to politics. And one of the, one of the African-American young men said to the other, we got to get Trump back in there. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, I want to hear this. And, and the, cause I mean, and then no dark, no big secret. I mean, most African-Americans vote Democrat. I mean, that's Seriously? not, you know, that's not racist. That's not provocative. That's the reality. But, but one said to the other, we got to get Trump back in there. And the other answered, sure do. I had money in my pocket. When Trump was president, it seems like I don't have any. Uh, is that anecdotal, do you think, or do you think there's wide appeal to his message? A lot of people have the Democratic Party has rested on their laurels, and they took voters for granted. And so we, we live in a world of what have you done for me lately? All right, My grandfather, my mom and dad, I mean, generations of my family have voted Democrat. Where's it gotten me, right? What do I have to show for it, right? Uh, barely scraping by, don't have money for my kid's education fund. You know, not living paycheck to paycheck, living paycheck to a few days before paycheck, right? Having to pay through the roof for health care costs. Now my wages are perhaps going down because of immigrants flocking across the border dealing with inflation. So, of course, right, these images sell themselves uh, for the opposition and for Republicans. What, what do you <clears throat> make of his lack of reverence? Um, I mean, you're from Buffalo. That yeah. makes you a New Yorker. <laughs> may not be from New York City, but <laughs> Southerners don't take to that well. No, you're, I mean, you're right. we, we believe that humility is to be celebrated. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, there seems to be a lack of that with Trump. Um, the things he's done, he takes credit for. The things <laughs> he's not done, he takes yeah. credit for. The, the, the failures he's responsible for, he blames somebody else <laughs> for those. I don't know if that's the typical <laughs> New Yorker, but in the yeah. South, that normally doesn't play well. Yeah. But for whatever reason, um, Southerners give him a pass. Yeah. And this is the area where maybe not I'd don't have as many feet in the mega camp as, as others. It, it sort of is, as a historian, I hate to, I'm almost an institutionalist. It pains me to say that sure. I just, this is the way just things have been done. It's kind of, it's work. We, we do think kind of incrementally half a loaf is better than no loaf. You get behind the closed doors, the smoke-filled rooms, you, you, you cut the deal. Nobody really likes it, is happy, but that's how you move the ball forward. And Trump says, uh-uh. It's like, no, this, we're, we're, we're taking all this, we're going to burn it all down. 
and start from scratch. And so certainly for those Americans who've grown tired and maybe just don't, I'm a political junkie. This is this is how the game is played. Trump say, no, we're changing the rules. This is how we're going to do it. And again, why sh- why shouldn't we go big? Why should we just try and do these things bit by bit, little by little? Let's do something drastic, radical, and big right from the get-go. And that, that appeals to voters. But it's fair to say, I think, that most academics, and you'd be an academic, <laughs> most academics are institutionalist. Probably right. They, it's they, it's they in our DNA. The, they accept the, uh, the incremental, you know, yep. the procedural <laughs> way. Uh, this, which things that's to be respected. That's all we. That's what we know. All right. That's that's how we do it in, in our academic lives. That's how we've seen politicians do it for generations. And Trump's the guy that's saying, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, right, look at where it's gotten us. Why not? Let's let's think outside of the box and let's see. We can't really make it any worse at this stage. What do we got to lose? But but you would agree with me, I think, that the majority of workers in in Buffalo have a lot in common with the majority of workers in South Carolina. I mean, oh, sure. We're in different regions of the country. We have a different accent. I accept that. Um, but 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 it's 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 a it's a genuine belief that for whatever reason, I don't think they really understand trade policy and globalism and you know GAD and NAFTA and TPP. But I do believe you're onto something where they say, "Wow, it cost a lot more money for me to keep my head above water than it ever did." And it seems like when that guy was president, the economy was a little more favorable to my way of life. And, you know, things are improving now and maybe anecdotally, you know, gas prices are back up again. But for all those people, maybe the last couple of years, who had to cut back on a family vacation, limit what they were able to spend at Christmas, not visit their their family, their friends, if they're several hundred miles away, you don't, you don't forget stuff like that. And, you know, you blame the guy. The guy in charge is like, well, no, man, I had to make big cuts. I had to tell my kid no. I had to tell my kid they couldn't do something or had to curtail or couldn't take a family vacation because of the policies you put in place. I didn't have any of these problems when Trump was in office. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, man. Well, now now we're struggling just to make ends meet. So it's 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 a big problem that I think Biden has moving forward. Well explained. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt is our guest, history chair at Francis Marion University. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University. Dr. Bolt, I don't know if there's a single event that led to Trump becoming a political reality, but I do go back and I've said it over the air. I do believe that today you're talking about populism. It's always there. It's just sometime unleashed. And I think, I mean, in all honesty, your guy Jefferson and Jackson were populist at heart. Um, But I believe Dr. Bolt that when the world blew up in 2008, and we have the financial meltdown, a housing crisis, subprime lending, quantitative easing. I believe the day that the banks were bailed out, and I'm not saying good decision, bad decision. I understand the sophisticated economy. I understand, uh, to some degree, international finance saying, yeah. and why the government had to had intervene to in some way, <laughs> shape, or form. But the day the average American believed that their taxpayer dollars were bailing out the Goldman Sachs and Citibanks of the world was a day that you just saw kind of the populism yeah. go to extreme levels. What do you say about that? Well, I think no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. We are spending how many billions of dollars to bail the guys out who started this mess? You know, who who got who got us into this? And so now, right, we're gonna have we're gonna have to struggle. How many Americans were laid off? Had their wages reduced? It took us several years to kind of climb out of that economic crisis, that malaise. And then what happened? The guys, the guys who started it, the guys who were responsible, did they suffer? 
No, within a couple of years, everything was back to normal. They were back in their their multi dollar million dollar mansions and just kind of going on oh, just a little blip. Everything that they had lost, they were able to make back within a couple of years. How many people got wiped out? Right, small businesses who really took it on the chin. Right, people who lost their homes. Right, who had to foreclose. Now we can debate back and forth if they if they were in over their head beforehand. But again, the guys who started it never really suffered. Only a couple of them right wound up going to jail. In the, but how many people's lives were turned upside down, right? Many of them were on nice, easy street. Hey, all right, I'm going to have a nice retirement. I'm going to have enough set up for my kids to have a nice college education. We've won the American dream. And then all of a sudden, as a result of no result, no fault of your own, you've done everything you're supposed to do. You've checked all the boxes, listened to the financial advisors. Like, Uh-oh, uh, you're wiped out, right? And you're back to starting from scratch. You know, your business, which you'd poured your heart and soul into, Ah, sorry about that. That's what we call a tough break. Were there any situations in early American history similar to that? I mean, did did anything happen back then, post-revolution, post-founding of the country, post the Jefferson-Adams administrations? Did anything like that happen that reminds you of this? Well, every every 15 to 20 years in early American history, you had these economic crises, or they would call them panics. And so you could set your watch by it every 15 to 20 years. Uh, maybe that's the length of the financial memory, or maybe that's just you get a new bunch of suckers. So you had a panic, 1819, 1837, 57, 1873, 1893, 1907, then finally the big one in 1929 that leads to the Great Depression. So right, so we've had these before, uh, and again, you've once we kind of like got to the to the 1980s, we kind of like, hey man, with this the bull market is here to stay. Look at all throughout the 1990s, the tech boom, and then all of a sudden just we really, really hit the wall, and and I guess the alternative was if we didn't get involved, if we didn't bail out the banks, we would have had something akin to the Great Depression in the 1920s. But again, I think there was lots of pent-up anger percolating under the surface. Then again, a lot of the people who had just been, hey, we're doing our jobs right, and look at this. These guys get a get a blank check, a get-out-of-jail-free card. We're having to work twice as hard for the same wage. We can't make ends meet. And so, right, maybe we need to maybe change this up. Do we really need the banks having this much clout and power that if the banks go down, they're going to take all of us with them? I mean, that's something something's kind of fundamentally off with that. When did when did the first what is the first episode in American history of public resentment toward its government? I mean, there was a big celebratory period post-revolution. Yeah. Obviously, you win the revolution. You start your own government. You, you learn as you go to some degree. When did we recognize or notice the first public resentment to the U.S. government? Well, to, to thank you very much for that nice softball. But it's, it's Andrew Jackson. Uh, Jackson runs for president in 1824, basically as an outsider. He had held elective office. He served in the Senate for a couple of months and said, what the heck, this, this, this isn't for me, man. Uh, resigned and went back home to Nashville. So, again, he's an outsider, a military hero uh, who says, all right, what we've been doing, the same, we're doing the same thing for 20 years. Uh, let's let somebody else get under the hood and kind of tinker with it, and let's make some changes. Uh, Jackson had the most popular and electoral votes, uh, but yet he lost the election in 24 through what he called bargain and corruption. And then this just galvanized Jackson supporters. They came out in mass the next time, uh, 1820, and were proud, uh, elected an outsider. And when Jackson was inaugurated, the people came from across the country uh, in 1929. Official Washington, D.C. was horrified over all these people coming up to the Capitol. The Hayseeds. Exactly. Well, there's the the famous story, Daniel Webster from Massachusetts said, yeah, I met a man from Louisiana 
who was half man, half alligator. I mean, just, they had never seen anything like this. And almost a polite Washington stayed inside their homes, locked their doors. When Jackson was, after he was inaugurated, he opened up the White House so all the people could come in. No president had done that before. Nobody's done it since. But like eventually they it turned into a house party gone awry. They were stealing silver. They were smashing paintings. Uh, they weren't raised right there. They didn't listen to them. They didn't take their mud-covered boots off. So Jackson says, well, how do I get rid of all these people? And he said, well, let's take the alcohol. Let's take the punch bowls outside. And the people followed the alcohol. And then he locked up the White House. And so for official Washington, it's like, oh, my God, what an inauspicious work. We've got four more years of this. The country is really going to you-know-what in a handbasket. But but was was Jackson ideologically driven or was it all about populism? I mean, people, I'll accuse, well, I don't accuse anybody of anything, but I'll, I'll very often say to Republican leaders, don't make a mistake in believing that Trump voters are Republican voters. Right. They're Trump voters. Jackson yeah. voters weren't not ideologically driven. They were voting for Andrew Jackson. Jackson, Jackson was a national hero. Right? Everybody knew who Jackson was. He was the great hero of the Battle of New Orleans. And by the time he runs the second time in 28, I mean, he was the guy that the insiders colluded with to deprive him of the presidency. And so that angered, that annoyed many, many Americans who were over maybe on the fence, I get involved in politics. They came out in mass in droves. And they made sure. When you voted in public at this time, when you voted for Andrew Jackson in most states, everybody knew uh, there would be a public record. It would be in the newspapers. And those guys weren't shy. Uh, they wanted it to be known that, yes, I am a Jackson man through and through. And Jackson said, we're going to cleanse the uh, the Augean stables, sort of a reference back to Greek mythology and Hercules. Right? We're going to get rid of all these corrupt bureaucrats who've been in office for generations who were just collecting a paycheck. And, of course, Jackson was dangling offices in front of uh, many of his supporters got rid of around 25% of all federal office holders once he became president. So do you buy what I'm selling, that the Trump voter is not necessarily a Republican voter, yeah. but rather oh, a yeah. Donald Trump voter? Oh, oh, absolutely. And how many of these guys had started out had been Democrats uh, right before Trump came down? What do the, they go after, uh, Trump? Well, that's, again, I think, I think we both agree that MAGA is here to stay. And Trump, of course, is going to have to ride off into the sideline or into the— <laughs> Off stage, right, if you will. I guess if he's losing and then run again another another four years. But <laughs> all signs seem to indicate, right, that stranger things can happen. But he's got some favorable wins at his back, right? After he leaves, right, who is the, who is the understudy? And again, I think there's very very important vice presidential pick because uh, that one will probably have the easiest the inside track on carrying out the mantle. And it's it's interesting. There's could be a lot of individuals uh, who'd love to be the heir apparent. To okay. President Trump. Well said. We'll take a break. Thanks. We'll be back down to Will Bold History Chair, Francis Marion University, back in just a few moments. You know, there's a science behind the madness. There really and truly is. It comes down to math. I've told Rev that a million times. I think he's convinced of that, of that now. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest decisions that Trump will have to make is the who's the heir apparent to the America First movement. Um, Bolt calls it MAG. I said just now during the break, I'm not as reluctant as I once was to refer to the movement as MAGA. You had really transitioned hard to be all America first. Well, I mean, it, it's a little bit like this. The, the Biden administration, the Democrats, the MAGA extremist, the MAGA extremist, the MAGA extremist, yeah. the MAGA extremist. Ultra MAGA. Well, no. I mean, and I just don't think people are buying that. I just think people say, make America great again. For a long time, I didn't refer to it as a MAGA. It was America first. I mean, how do you how do you pose that? I mean, America first. What, America last? America third? Yeah, I'm running, and I want to make America third. 
Um, okay, good luck with that. You, you wonder. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm America first. So I always thought that was the best descriptive of the, the political movement. And I thought the Democrats had won that debate about MAGA. MAGA is an extremist movement. It's um, it's out of the mainstream. It's those rough and tumble guys. They'll fight. They'll break in into the Capitol and whatnot. Bolt, I've got a theory, and I'm going to get your take on right. this. I believe the best way to dispense of Donald Trump is to let him be <laughs> and to leave him alone and to not pay any attention to his antics yeah. or his, yeah. his unorthodoxies. But, but I think the people that have tried to destroy MAGA, America First, the Trump presidency, have only <laughs> made it more energetic I, than it's ever been. Right. I, I, I would say that Donald Trump lives rent-free in the heads of so many of his opponents, right? Why they, is that? He's not an extremist. You're right, I mean, but they've just been led to believe and he just doesn't play things by the rules. I, for generations, there is this is what you do, right? You go to the House, you go, to, you start in the state, local government, you work your way up, you serve as a backbench Congress, maybe get into the Senate, maybe become the governor of your state, and then that's how you do it. Trump just sort of like all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, out of the ether, there he is coming down the escalator, I'm going to run for president. And everybody thought, oh my God, there's no way he's going to, carry any single season. He's not even going to come close to the nomination. And then suddenly, what's he doing? He's he's winning, winning bigs. And suddenly, your, your Ted Cruz's, your Marco Rubio's, who thought that this was a coronation for them, are, are scrambling. And so, right, this movement, which just sort of started off, like you said, if you look back 2015, 2016, you saw the, the MAGA, the Make America Great Again bumper sticker, sort of on like the back of a rusty pickup truck that if you know, you didn't want to be behind it because you're afraid it was like going to dissolve or just like explode. Other something fall off of it. <laughs> and now it's like, well, that's, that guy—that's a much nicer truck than mine. It's a six sixty thousand dollar vehicle. There's Lexus, BMWs with Trump stickers, "Make America." I mean, no matter where you go here around Florence, you know, just in the grocery store, Trump hats, Trump shirts. I mean, it just—it is—it's not going away. It is fascinating, uh, just what he has been able to do in the span of of eight years. And I, I say it time and time again. Oh, for the historians to be able to kind of go back and study this, hopefully objectively, and hopefully they can leave their their biases at the front door when they do it. What do you make of the the more dignified Trump supporter? Um, I mean, the, the, the not so good old boy that is a member of the club. He has a certain social standing, but in his bones, he feels Trump's the right guy. He's but, a little more reserved right. about his support of Trump. Maybe not. I would say four years ago, you'd just be kind of like, like out on the golf course, and then all of a sudden maybe one guy would let it slip. I'm thinking about, and then everybody else, oh, yeah, 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 me too, yes. All right, now I'm amongst friends, and they thought, all right, I got, I got to keep this secret. You know, I'm like, don't, don't let it slip out that I'm going for this guy. No, I think now more and more people wear it as a badge of honor. All right? And so if they hear you kind of talking trash about him, they're going to stand up for their guy, and they're going to you know, poke, their, poke their nose and say, uh-uh, this is my guy. Uh, I'm not going to let you do this, right? I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to tell you this is why I like him. This is why I think we should vote for him. And again, he just he's he's not going away. It's just, just fascinating. It seems to me there seems to be it seems to me there seems to be more uh, of an acceptance that he's not going yeah. away. Jamie Diamond is in Davos on the set of CNBC, and we know what Diamond thinks. I mean, Diamond is an institutionalist. Diamond likes again, things yeah. to work. A certain way, big money I mean, guy. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, Diamond's world is, is consisted of uh, enormous decisions, financially yeah. related, and it's easier to make those decisions when people aren't uncontrollable. Right. You've you've game planned the system. He, sure, he, he's got them in their well, back he built pocket. The system, he had a hand in building. Right, I mean, he's got system. all those guys. He knows what they're going. He's got a playbook on them, and he's got no film. 
They Nothing have a deal. At all. Antrim. Exactly. They have a deal. He has and, a deal with them. They have a deal with him. Uh, you need money, come see me. When I need something done politically, I'll come see you. It's an unholy alliance, yep. but but it's so pervasive That's how it's in, been done. in Washington. That's exactly how it's been yeah. done. So what do you make when Diamond on the set of CNBC is, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, the Mass Trump guy might not be that bad. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think he's accepting what you're arguing. This yeah. this thing isn't going away. Right. I mean, I don't know that they had a meeting at J.P. Morgan in the boardroom and all were never Trumpers and all said, hey, man, <laughs> as much as we're never Trumpers, there's a lot of people who aren't. And we're going to have to play in this play box or sandbox for an extended period of time. So why continue to insult? Why not begin to accept this political energy? It's a continuation of the populism. He's no dummy. He's really more and more of his stockholders. Uh, The people who are responsible for him in this gig are kind of shifting and moving into that camp. And and the other thing that I I like about Trump is like, Trump, sorry, we're going to make a deal. And then Trump is like, yeah, a couple of days later. I'm going to tear up that deal. I'm going to, I want to, I want to get a better one for myself. So just because we kind of had something like, uh-uh, let's renegotiate that. So ain't nothing is sacred with president. He's a brother for a share. I mean, just, it's, he's the gift that keeps on giving for guys like us. Is it fair to say that the powerless have felt they had nobody in the room, yeah. you know, fighting for their interest, whether Trump is or not. I mean, I think there's a fair debate to be had about his sincerity. I mean, I, you know, Rev doesn't like to throw that on the table. Josh Dutton, but I mean, I think you've got to throw it on the table. When you're dealing with Trump and sincerity, there's got to be some questions there. Yeah. I mean, he's a classic opportunist, but who's not? I mean, every one of us to some degree are opportunists. Sure. And he sees an opportunity, he takes advantage of the opportunity, but a lot of the Trump detractors say he doesn't mean a word he says. I mean, he's taking advantage of those people who believe the world has passed them by. They see him as a crusader. He's simply playing them like he's played nah. everyone else. And again, when was the last time that you had somebody who maybe when they spoke to you, they they weren't speaking right through you, right? And and, and Trump already, he's good at these kitchen table issues, you know, just like, you know, groceries, just home appliances, stuff that you wouldn't expect this guy to be able to sit down and have a, a good conversation with. He knows he, he knows him frontwards and backwards, knows him so much better than how many of the other elected officials who should know all of these issues and be able to relate to the people. But no, I think... And he, not many people have a chance to get him one-on-one alone in a room, but he seems to be that guy that just can can talk to you about a lot of these, just these everyday issues that you're kind of dealing with and confronting. And it's been a long, long time since we've maybe had anybody in American politics that you could feel like, oh, yeah, this is a guy that if, if, if I saw this guy at a bar right and just having a conversation with, if I saw this guy at the gas station pumping gas next to me, I could strike up a conversation with him. And, again, it would be just a normal conversation like any other guy I knew Trump's that guy, and there's not that many other individuals in politics who can strike that chord. I think I know the answer to this, and I don't want you to throw your brethren under the bus. Um, you're a member of a fraternity. We all are in some way. I'm, I go to the gym. I go to work. I do this. I do that. I don't hang around faculty lounges. I mean, that's part of your gig. That's part of your job. Is to. I mean, is the what is the sentiment of Trump in some of these faculty lounges? And I don't want to get you in trouble here. I mean, I think I understand that you know institutional academia are not a big fan of Donald Trump, but are there some outliers? Oh, yeah. There's, oh, yeah. There's, and I, I think you're seeing it more and more that, again, eight years ago, those guys were kind of quiet. Hey, you, know, well, you, you like Trump too? Shh, let's not, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's go to the bathroom and talk about this. So now you're right. It's a little more, hey, the door is open. All right. And so, man, I, I don't care if somebody is walking by. And so, right, I think more and more are, are coming more comfortable, right, uh, revealing that they, that there. Now, again, they're certainly still in the minority 
and I'm sure that's it is in the profession. But 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 academia requires intellectual curiosity. Oh, at, at and academia is not <laughs> doing its job. It's not intellectually curious about one of these political phenomenons that they're living in the midst of. Oh, sure. I mean, just I mean, think of all the books, the, the, the essays that are going to be written about this guy. Once he rides off, I mean, yes, if you're a, a political scientist, anybody who kind of studies history, right, you should be fascinated by the, the Trump phenomenon. A sociologist, I mean, he, he cuts across so many, so many disciplines. I mean, yes, there's going to be so, so much to be written and debated about the guy in the next 20 years. Very well explained. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Have a good week, guys. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Bolt will, probably send, Bolt will probably send me a text in about an hour saying, hey, can I come work with you guys? <laughs> they won't let me back in the lounges. They won't let me back in the classrooms. I told him, and I mean this sincerely, we, we form these opinions of people that we don't know. We form these opinions of professions that we expect uh, to be a certain way. And I don't know that we don't deserve a better debate and consideration to that. I think Bolt appears to be very authentic, very real, Grew up in Buffalo, went to the University of Tennessee. Um, I mean, that's kind of sort of stuff that the majority of us do and and have done. Um, is academia liberal? I think Bolt would admit, yeah, it's probably too liberal. Um, does it need to be more engaged in critical thinking and, you know, uh, disagreeable conversations? Yes, it does. And, um, I mean, that, that's really – I mean, if you ask me the main motivation – for my support of Donald Trump, it's that we can't continue the way we are. I mean, it's not. I don't know that Trump has the answers. In fact, I'm sure he doesn't on many fronts. But I just don't believe that America can sustain itself if we continue down the course that we're on. That would be the most legitimate argument I could make. If someone walked in the studio right now and said, Ken, you're not dumb and you support Trump. Explain it to me why you believe. It would be that. I mean, I, I know we need disruption. I know we need unsettledness. I'm to the point now that I believe we need destabilization. I mean, that's out there, man. I mean, you're talking about destabilizing a government. Yes. I mean, a government that has become so enormously powerful. I mean, it's a monstrosity of a machine that controls so many aspects of our universe. And it's not doing its job. I mean, I can't say it's lousy at its job. Because if I'm benefiting from what government's doing, it's not lousy at its job. It's not doing what it was intended to do. And that's always been my ah, priority in supporting Donald Trump. I don't believe they're going to tell him what to do. I don't believe they're going to tell him what to pass. Now, once again, I think there's a fair debate about insincerity or not. I mean, Josh kind of nodded his head. Of course there is. I mean, you know, is Trump a sincere man when he speaks to the working class and says, I am your, your warrior? I mean, I, I don't know if that's politics or if that's sincere. Don't have any idea. Um, something tells me it's a little of both. I mean, you can be sincerely optimistic or, excuse me, a sincere opportunist, can't you? I mean, you, you know, I, I, I've asked this question of Rev, and we've had this on and off the air. When Trump shows up in 16, at a rally in Alabama at a football stadium is full of 40,000 people, and they're perceiving him to be kind of a savior. Hey, we've been waiting on you a long time. I mean, I don't believe you can heal me. I don't believe you can cure cancer. I don't believe you can get me to heaven or not, but I believe you can upset the apple cart of people who have controlled the political debate in America, and I'm they, they're partially the reason that my life is not as prosperous as I thought it would be. 
And and I, you know, I I think I don't know what he believed when he got back on that plane to go back home to New York City that night. Did he say, "Wow, I mean, we got these people eating out of our hands, and we can win this election," or did he say, "Wow, I mean, the, the, the country's treated these people unfairly," because the country's treated those people unfairly. Now, now we can argue about why, when, here, and, and who, but the country has treated the American working class unfairly. This government decided. 30 or 35 years ago to ship its eventual wage increases to places with totalitarian dictatorship governments. I mean, that's a known fact. You can't debate that. Was it intentional? I don't know. Don't have any idea that they believe what some of the PowerPoints said about NAFTA. I, I don't know, but there is no doubt that it harmed the prosperity of American workers. Take a break back at a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I don't like plastic candidates, and I don't like certain phraseologies in politics. Stand with me. I'll stand with you. Will you stand together? Uh, we got to stand against this. Stand for that. I'm like, I mean, it's just so, it's it's cliche and corny as far as I'm concerned. So when I heard a report yesterday that America's governors are standing with Texas. And then Governor Abbott about securing the border. I'm thinking to myself, what does that mean, standing together? Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Eben, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. So what exactly are the fellow governors of more conservative states than not standing with Abbott in regards to Texas securing its own border? Well, uh, th- th- this is uh, lending uh, the, the strength of their voice, if you will, to Texas's efforts to control border migration uh, in what the Biden administration says in in an illegal move um, because uh, the state of Texas has put up its own wire fencing. It's it's patrolling the border areas uh, and it is constrained uh, the migration to actual legal points of entry as opposed to hopping across border fences and going on the run. Uh, So, for instance, I think a lot of people have been have finally heard about Eagle Pass, Texas, and Shelby Park specifically, which is along the Rio Grande. Um, and there had been thousands upon thousands of, of migrants coming across daily in that area. It's down to, I think, the last count something was like three, not 3,000, but three. Um, and this was on efforts uh, of, uh, of, of Texas. And uh, so, you know, it's interesting because so much more of the country now recognizes the danger and the crisis that is the poorest southern border. And I think a lot of that began when Governor DeSantis of Florida arranged for those flights from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, Um, because from then on in, there were efforts made and and it's still going on to transport migrants who want to go to the interior of the country uh, to these sanctuary cities, uh, the so-called sanctuary cities that were so proud to announce that they were sanctuary cities, places like New York in Los Angeles and Seattle and Denver and Chicago and and the whatnot. Uh, and those places have now been uh, receiving these people for more more than a year now, I think. And, and they're, they're overrun. Their social services can't handle it. They don't have the places to put them. In some cases, they're in tent cities. In some cases, they're, they're a taxpayer expense uh, taking up hotel space and Airbnb space and the like. Uh, if they're not being, uh, if they're not evicting veterans and and uh, senior citizens from old age homes to uh, to use the bed space, uh, so uh, this has obviously put the proper spotlight on a very real crisis that just a few years ago was considered a managed crisis, if not solved, uh, 
under the Trump administration. Uh, but uh, you, you cannot deny that uh, within hours of taking uh, of, of taking control, the Biden administration seeking to undo uh, Trumpism, if you will. Uh, one of the first things they did was uh, rescind all the Trump era policy uh, on uh, with regard to border security. The Remain in Mexico program, which was an extremely popular program, not just in the United States, but also with Mexico. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and it's turned into a, a disaster. Even the so-called blue cities are saying we can't handle this. We're overrun. We don't have the budgets. And the Biden administration is not helping. Eben, legally, from what I understand, there's a pending decision in the appellate courts, but the Supreme Court ruled on an injunction. And my understanding right. where rubber meets the road, Texas can put up razor wire. The federal government can cut the razor wire down Texas can put the razor wire back up again. Is that a proper interpretation? Sort of, yeah. I mean, or or, or Texas can put up a different one five feet this way. You know, it, it it's it, it's a little nebulous. Um, the big legal question is, you know, what can Texas do to enforce U.S. borders? Um, and is, is does Texas have the right to do this? And uh, Governor Abbott argues there's a constitutional right to do this under Article One to say that if where the, the federal government is not helping out with an actual invasion, uh, that the states have the ability to defend themselves. And the term has been used uh, to describe these waves of hundreds of thousands, now millions of illegal migrants, as an invasion uh, for more than one reason. One, it's, it's an unmitigated uh, illegal entry through borders uh, by people who are unrelenting, uh, and uh, uh, and and uh, are often more often than not fighting age males, uh, as opposed to families seeking asylum or respite, uh, where people bring their wives and their kids because they're escaping poor or horrible conditions back home. Uh, they're leaving the wife and the kids home, and they're coming here uh, on their on their own, uh, by and large. Not to say there aren't any females; there are, and certainly we know of trafficked children from the cartels. But most of the people coming are fighting age males, and that has raised serious concern for a lot of people. Very well explained. Eben, thank you for your time, sir. You got it. As usual, Eben Brown nails it. Give it a good account of what's happening with Texas, some of the fellow governors, southern border. I'm thinking about it when Eben's speaking, and, uh, and Bolt just left. Josh nods his head a lot over the other studio. I want Josh to jump in for a second because we're talking about anecdotal I mean, a couple of African-American young guys in the gym. Uh, Bolt's talking about a couple of members of faculties around uh, a certain university that say, hey, let's go to the bathroom if we're talking about this. Let's go outside and we're going to talk about, about that. To me, I mean, if Trumpism, I mean, let's say Trumpism is real. Um, I mean, we know America First is. We know MAGA is. Now, now how real, how powerful, how enduring, how sustained, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. I love these folks who say, well, I know exactly what happens by 2028. I'll admit, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what it looks like in, in 2028. I know what it looks like today. And if the election were today, Donald Trump would get elected president of the United States of America. I mean, I am unbelievably sure that that would happen if it were today. It's not today. I mean, there are a lot of things that can happen. Trump's unpredictable. I mean, he can hurt himself, help himself. Hurt himself again. He would be an over-under for Vegas. How many times will Trump say things that hurt him between now and November? How many times will he say things that, I mean, we know it's a lot. I mean, it'd be a hundred times 
that he'll say things that you're like, wow, okay. He doesn't do it as much as he did. And I think that's a reflection on him trusting these very able people he have running his campaign. But take MAGA and America first out of the equation. And let's make it about Trump for just a second, Josh. I mean, he is the central figure in this movement. There is no doubt. We got no idea who the heir apparent will be. Could be J.D. Vance. Could be Ron DeSantis. I don't know who it is going to be. But to me, Trump says things in a very off-the-cuff, authentically believable way. You ready, Josh? That just makes sense. I mean, when asked about military uh, excursions, Trump said, well, I'm not going to tell you when we're doing it. I mean, that'd be dumb. I'm not going to tell you when we're And I think most Americans go, I mean, I mean that makes sense. You know, you can't let all these people in our country. They come from crap hole places. I mean, I think if you're honest with yourself, that's exactly right. You can't let all these people come into the country. They all, the majority come from crap hole places. They bring some of that crap holeness with them, and we're less of a nation because of it. And I think most Americans say, damn, Donald, I wish you wouldn't say it that way. But, but he's kind of telling the truth. So the beauty of Trumpism is that what he says normally makes sense. I mean, I understand he says it in the most flamboyant way imaginable, and I've got no idea if that's intentional or not. I mean, some people says he says it to provoke, and I said, no, he's an old rich guy. Old rich guys seem to be blunt. I mean, they tend to be very authentic in what saying what they believe. I mean, put yourself in Trump shoes. If you're if you're 78 and you're wealthy, I mean, why would you beat around the bush? Why why would you try to be careful and politically correct? and make sure you didn't offend anybody or hurt anybody's feelings. So I think we've gotten past that. And I think the majority support around Trumpism, I think America first is a different animal. I mean, I think that's going to require a lot of intellectual underpinning, a lot of other actors to come on board and let's build this, you know, machine that kind of competes with liberalism and and conservative ink and establishment-oriented uh, politics. But, Josh, is that, am I on to something when I say that when Trump says things, as a 78-year-old rich guy, he sounds like he's saying things that just make sense in, in the most casual sense. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what you're picking up on is his his genuineness. Because you were mentioning earlier how there is a debate about uh, why, like where his heart's at. Is he really in it? Is he being disingenuous? To me, I think it's obvious that he is in it for the people. I, I do not think he's in it for himself, but I get that this is not obvious in general, like to most people. But I do think that he is a rich man, but at heart is a common man. He feels for the, he, his heart goes out to the common man and he talks in a way he's, he's just himself. He's just out there. He's genuine. He says, I'm not going to tell you about the, the, my plans for the military. Cause because China's listening, because so-and-so's listening. Because that'd be dumb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think you're exactly right. It's interesting that you believe he's authentic. Mm -hmm. I got a better question. Has it always been the case? Did, did this role grow on him? In, in other words, when, when he decided to run for president, he's got to find a lane. I mean, he got a star-studded cast in 16. You got from Rubio to Christie to Ren Paul. You got Jeb Bush. You got all these... Carly Fiorina. I mean, you've got a lot of Republicans that were to be seriously considered, and he just obliterated the field. I mean, he just obliterated the field in very little time. Was there ever a moment that he was disingenuous and more about politics than he was 
In other words, did Trump go to the campaign saying, hey, there's a populist lane here. I mean, there, there's a forgotten man out there, forgotten woman out there, and we're going to really dedicate our efforts to try and find those people. He finds those people, and he hears their plea, and he becomes genuinely motivated to try and make some changes in our government to put their lives in a better place. Yeah, I think that I, I think did he, he might be right. Did he find it, or did it find him? A little bit of both. I think he went in this realizing the country's screwed. He said the American dream is dead in his announcement speech. But I don't think he really understood, like the rest of us, understood to the degree it was until he became the president and saw how truly against him the system was. And that's when I think he, he it may have started as this kind of, well, I do care for the common man. But, you know, maybe it is a little bit I'm better than than these other people. But I think once everyone came after him with pitchforks, he realized the importance of him. Because if, if he was just in it for himself, I don't think they'd be prosecuting him to this degree if he's just said, I'm out, you know? The biggest mistake I think he made was underestimating the system, the machine. I mean, I think he got a lot of things right. He got some things wrong. I think he made a mistake with COVID. I think he made a mistake in trusting Fauci. I get it. I mean, it's, it's easy. It's hard to not blink in that circumstance. You're talking about disease and illness and 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 death and and you know um, hospitalizations and life changing. I mean, that, that that would be a very funky situation for anybody to find themselves in. But I think he underestimated. I think he knew there was a machine and he knew there was a system because he'd been a part of it. I mean, he says, I know how it works because I was a part of it. I, mean, I helped build the machine. I think he unbelievably underestimated the power and might and commitment the machine, the system would make in making sure. I mean, if Trump gets elected and sits down with a machine and says, hey, guys, I mean, I said all these things on the campaign trail. I said it to get elected. I mean, the hayseeds and, and cowboys and good old boys and, you know, the, 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 the NASCAR fans. I mean, I knew that they were irate. With you guys, but but please remember, I'm I'm much more one of you than I am one of them. I wonder if there was ever that overture. I wonder if any point in time some of the insiders said to Trump, "Hey, you're one of us. You know that." I mean, he got elected. We never thought it would happen, but it did. So let's let bygones be bygones. You leave those you leave those hayseeds where those hayseeds are, and let's get to business maintaining this machine. It's good for you. It's good for your friends. It's good for your business associates. Uh, I just wonder if there was ever that attempt to reach out to Trump and say, Donald, come on now. I mean, you know you're much more one of us than you are one of them. And if the overture was made, did he emphatically refuse to accept uh, the um, the hypothetical invitation? I think of that a lot. I mean, and, I, and then uh, they realized they couldn't control it. Well, I mean, I, I just wonder Maybe. that. I, I don't know that. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think they all knew that he was different. Um, they all knew that he got elected under some pretty unusual circumstances, but I've always asked myself, I mean, I've had this conversation with Robert, you know, wonder if there was ever a call, Donald, right over to such and such, and let's get together. And there's 20 or 25 of the Jamie Diamonds of the world, the Lord Blank Fines of the world, um, you know, the, um, the, the, the movers and shakers is how we would refer to those people. And they said, Donald, come on now. I mean, you know, you much more one of us than you are one of them. I get it. I understand it. You did a hell of a job in convincing all those people 
that you were their crusader, you were their Robin Hood, you were their uh, gladiator. But in all honesty, it's better for all of us to keep the trains running on time, you know, to keep the machine running as it's supposed to to run. It's in your best interest. It's in Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric's best interest to kind of keep on doing what we've always done. And I wonder if Donald said, eh, thank you, but no, thank you. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm playing this out in my head. I don't know. It's obvious he's remained publicly loyal to the voters. I mean, it's still about America first. It's still about the, the machine is rigged. It's still about drain the swamp. I just think he underestimated the resistance he would have once he got there. My question, Rev, is did they have a meeting before the resistance? Did they give Trump a chance to get on board? And once he decided to not get on board, they launched, you know, the, the biggest resistance to an American president I've ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, there may have been another, talk about Andrew Jackson and somebody, but I, in my lifetime, I've never seen such powerful forces line up to make sure a guy failed as president of the United States. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bob in Florence. Good morning. You're on. Hey, good morning, all. Hey, I want to turn back real quick to the um, the uh, Democratic primary that was this past weekend. Now, only 4% of the Democratic voters voted. And I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if, um, uh, as much as I'm at a dilemma figuring this out, what are the, uh, the, the, the Democrat leaders telling their useful idiots to do uh, come this um, uh, the Republican primary? Are they telling them to go register Republican and vote for Nikki? Which will be kind of counterintuitive because they're all telling the population, and you, you see it on all the, the news reports and everything, Trump can't win. Trump can't win. I mean, Ken, do you have any insight? Is there a Cahaley? Uh, uh, I, I, don't need, I don't need Robert's guidance on this. I'll tell you point blank. They don't believe what they're trying to sell. They're trying to convince you that Trump can't win. They know damn well Trump can win. There is no doubt in their mind that he can win, and they are doing everything they can to make sure they avoid that scenario. Okay. That's that kind of thing I'm looking for. It uh, it just seems, you know, the useful idiots will do uh, whatever their handlers uh, tell them to do. Um, but in addition to that, you know, Biden's doing a, a victory lap after 4%, 4%. I mean, what was it? Maybe a hundred and it wasn't more than 110,000 individuals voting. Yeah. Not a lot of enthusiasm. Thank you. Appreciate the call. I had a text Saturday afternoon from a Democrat friend of mine, and we share, I mean, we don't share secrets, but we share opinions in politics. And he said, you know, horrible turnout, absolutely no enthusiasm. It's going to be a tough year. I mean, he would tell me that. And I'll tell him, you know, we've got a mess on our hands. I mean, the mess we have on our hands is a certain percentage of GOP voters said they're not voting for Trump under any circumstance. Um, That's troubling. I mean, that's, you know, will they come back home? Drew McKissick says they will. Drew has to say they will. I mean, Drew's livelihood is dependent upon them coming back home. I don't know if they will or not. I mean, I don't have any idea how many never-Trumpers are really, truly never-Trumpers, but I know this for a fact, that the the media 
and the Never Trump machine have convinced or try to convince you that Trump can't win. They don't believe that. I mean, I am I am positive that they don't buy that for a skinny second. I mean, the polling shows something different. Um, I mean, I'll give an example. And this is why I'm a little bit more optimistic than most. Trump's campaign is professionally managed. It may have a bit of a wild man as its candidates, good and bad. I mean, Trump cuts both ways. You know it. I know it. When I ran for office, I cut both ways. I mean, I would say things, and and Robert was, why did you say that? Because I believe it, Robert. Yeah, but I mean, why? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was better left unsaid. But but anyway, I mean, you know, candidates that ad lib, candidates that fly by the seat of their pants, normally cut both ways. Trump has two of the most competent Republican strategists running his campaign today. I'll ask you this, guys and ladies. How many times have you heard Ivanka Trump in the mix? Don Jr., Eric Trump. Very little. Jared Kushner. I mean, they're family. They're still family. He loves them. They love him. The deal was, we'll run this campaign, Donald, and we can get you elected, but we're not going to do it the way you did it in 2020. I mean, we, we just we, it's, it's too wild. It's too woolly. It's not consistent. Our messaging was off. We didn't show discipline. Uh, we didn't deploy assets where we where we should have. So he's got, I think her name's Susie Weil, and the guy's name is Chris LaSavada. I mean, these guys are really, really good at what they do. Um, the lady left DeSantis' campaign on bad terms. I mean, I think he didn't want her to leave, and she left, and I don't know if Trump offered her a bunch of money. don't have any idea what sort of financial arrangement they've made. But you don't hear leaks. You don't hear a lot of disgruntlement. I mean, because there's there's not much of that. The excuse me, the the James Carvilles of the world know that this is a an absolute well run campaign. It's short on money. I mean, it is. I mean, the 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 donor class have withheld. Now, the 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 biggest question: Do the Jamie Diamonds of the world come around? I mean, is it inevitable that Trump's going to be the nominee? Yes. Is Republican policy normally better for business? Yes. But will the Jamie Diamonds of the world raise a hundred grand, raise a million, you know, call their uh, confidants and cohorts and suggest strongly to give to Trump's campaign? The way that Trump can become undefeated, and I'm actually going to talk to Robert a little bit about this. Who am I to come up with the idea? But I believe this. I believe that Trump's funding needs to be managed by one central authority. And if Dave Baker wants to give, I mean, let's, let's say Trump got 75 million votes. Let's say a third. I mean, let's say one of every three Trump voters is willing to give $100 a year. And they'll take it out of your, they'll bank draft it once a month. I mean, there's some administration fees and processing calls and whatnot. But I mean, guys, that is a staggering amount of money. I mean, you're talking about, what, $250 million? And that's just a hundred bucks a month. I mean, a hundred bucks a year. You're talking about an enormous amount of money. Um, ten dollars a month. I mean, how many of you would give ten bucks a month? That's twenty-five million dollars a month. That's three hundred million dollars in a year. I mean, that makes him legit. He doesn't need Wall Street. He doesn't need big business. I mean, he still take Wall Street. You still take big business because you don't go to politics set out to destroy Wall Street. You don't go into politics to destroy big business. 
I mean, you, nobody's goal going into politics should be, well, I'm going to teach Home Depot a lesson. I'm teaching J.P. Morgan. I mean, that's absurd. You don't do that. You create a fairness in the economy. You try to create a world where big business can thrive and prosper and mom and pop can thrive and prosper. And you think things through individually. It's not like like this big, i got to make one decision for all big businesses, one decision for all small business. Republicans today are struggling with business because there, there is a kind of a line of demarcation. you got to look at big business differently than you look at small business. And I think historically Republicans have looked at business as business. And I think we got to segregate some of that, uh, some of that, but nobody, I mean, I don't care how much, how much of an America firster you are. You shouldn't go to Washington with the intent to run big banks out of business and run Home Depot and Lowe's out of business. So all these mom and pop lumber yards, I mean, nah, but there, there's got to be some, some even keelness about that. But, but the way Trump becomes the most funded candidate is for the majority of people who don't have a lot of resources. I mean, they're, they're, they're not destitute. They're not desperate. They're not broke but they can't write a big check to a candidate. They can't host a fundraiser for a candidate. You've got to motivate yourself to give $10 a month, $20 a month to a trustworthy ally of Donald Trump. I mean, that's the best way we can help him because he's going to struggle in fundraising. I mean, he's not going to be as funded as Biden. He's not as funded as as Haley because Haley's the darling of the donor class. So what we've got to do is take rank-and-file Republican voters who believe the only way to move the meters give a million dollars. The only, I mean, Nikki Haley was at Ken Langone's house. I mean, what is my $10 going to do? It's the compounding effect. I mean, if 25 million of us gave $10 a month until November, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's not going to be his only money, but that makes him unbelievably competitive, <laughs> excuse me, in some, of these, um, in some of these swing states that he's going to have to be competitive in. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hi, you're on. Um, good morning, guys. Um, I've been both uh, an academic and a corporate business guy, and I kind of describe Donald Trump as being, uh, you know, an excellent management-type person. Uh, Washington, of course, is filled with lawyers, and, and lawyers are great at uh, getting paid by the hour, so there's no need to rush things. Or, or shorten things. And academics and the media, I think, have something in common with lawyers in the sense that they're all about theory and hypothetical-type situations. It's, they, they get their most uh, reward by being idealistic about things. Uh, in, in, in classical definitions, uh, managers are very pragmatic. Um, they do things like planning and uh, they, they, they have an end goal in mind, and I think Donald Trump approached Washington as a businessman. Uh, they also organize things. Things have to make logical sense and not necessarily something that does favors. Um, they motivate. They motivate with, uh, you know, reward and punishment, and they're decisive. They make decisions. They don't necessarily pussyfoot around and compromise and uh, collaborate and cooperate. They kind of get to the point and they're focused on the bottom line. So when I think of uh, Donald Trump as an outsider, I think of him as a consummate businessman trying to deal with a world that is non, uh, non-pragmatic in its whole raison d'etre, 
So uh, that that's my take on it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, that's why the majority of businessmen get frustrated with government. I mean, we got to meet and then meet again and then uh, meet again and then we got to meet again and then we'll have a another meeting and then we'll meet about that meeting and then another. The I mean, the, I've accepted and I don't like this, Josh, but I accepted when I became familiar with government when I became elected official. I mean, my frustration was, wow. I mean, how long was it going to take to do this? I mean, I, you know, we got to sign this, got to do this, got to vote on that, got to wait for this, got to wait on that, and and got to award this person before they might do this, and honor, you know. And I'm not like, damn. I mean, that that would have been one of the two syllable dams. I mean, that would have been damn. <laughs> uh, I mean, the wheel ever do what needs to be done? Well, I mean, the wheels of government churn slow by design. Um, I mean, I think our founders, in some weird way, believed it was better to govern more less speedy than the private sector makes uh, its decisions. But I remember when, when they ran me out of Columbia, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, I wrote an article, I think it's on Fitz news now, but I wrote an article yesterday and put on Facebook. I'm one of two people in the world that served as Nikki Haley's Lieutenant governor. Henry McMaster would be uh, one of the others. So I saw up close and personal, you know, her work, I didn't stay long enough to consider whether she was a good governor or a bad governor. Everything I, every judgment I'd make would be from, from afar. Um, but I mean, I saw Nikki's rise. I saw her come from nowhere to be somewhere. And I knew that the Republican party was exploring a variety of ways to be more inclusive, more diverse, uh, more representative of, of America in general. You've heard me say I'm stale, pale and male, but, but my time in Columbia presiding over the Senate was the most miserable life I've ever lived. My, my chief of staff said one day after they ran me off, my chief of staff said, I'm telling you, if you give me another week, you'd quit. Because business people like to do things and see things get done. And government, I'll give you a great example. So one of my good friends, Vincent Sheen, and Vincent's a Democrat, ran against Nikki for governor in, uh, in 2010. Vincent's a good friend of mine, a very good and a good dude. Uh, a very legit stand-up guy, um, and he and I developed a very good friendship. They were vote. They were debating voter ID, and Vincent walks up and says, "Hey, we're going to adjourn at about one thirty. Going to eat lunch." Uh, well, I mean, Vincent's a Democrat. I'm Republican. We're not supposed to talk to one another in that building, right? But I mean, he's from Kershaw, Camden. I'm from Lawrence County, Pamplica. I mean, you know, we, we just had a lot in common. So Vincent comes to me and 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 talks about lunch, and I said, "Vincent, why can't we do this?" Why can't we just grandfather everybody over the age of 65 and require everybody under the age of 65 to have an ID in the next 24 months or you can't vote? And Vincent said, yeah, but what are we going to do all week? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what are we going to do all week? I mean, the Republicans right. have to convince their crowd of one thing. The Democrats have to convince their voters. Their, you know, the voter, the Democrat voters, got to. I mean, they got to believe that their representatives are looking at their voting rights, preserving voting rights. And the Republicans have to make sure that it's going to be a valid vote cast, right? I mean, the, so, but I'm, I'm going like, why can't we just right now, why can't we right now, I'll bang the gavel, you make a motion to grandfather everybody over the age of 65, they'll never have to have an ID. Under the age of 65, you got 24 months to go get an ID or you can't cast a ballot in South Carolina. And Vincent said, yeah, but what are we going to do Wednesday and Thursday? <laughs> I mean, this is on the docket. you got the docket. I mean, you're setting. What are we going to do? Really? I mean, how many volleyball teams can we award in the course of the next two days? Take a break. Back in a few. 
843-661-0937. Let's go to the call. Joel in Mullins. Good morning, Joel. Good morning, sir. Uh, Ken, uh, I'm confused about something. I hope you explain it to me. I've heard a lot on the radios lately about separating uh, America first from Donald Trump. I'm not sure I understand what that means. I thought that he was make America great again. Um, what have I missed? I mean, I don't think Trump is the entire movement. I mean, no one man. I mean, he's the central figure, no question about it. But I think the question that a lot of um, serious America firsters are asking themselves is what does it look like post-Trump? And I don't think we have any clarity there. I think it'll be the same ideals and principles. You know, let's pass policy. Let's promote an agenda that empowers the American family, the American worker, the American way of life. And it's hard to say that Washington's doing that today. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. That helps me. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Um, no, I mean, I, I've, I've said that there's a conundrum that America firsters will find themselves in. Trump is a political anomaly. I mean, I, I don't understand it. I mean, it, it's not transferable. I mean, his, what he gets away with, nobody else does. I'm not saying he plays by a different set of rules, but he kind of does. And I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just it is what it is, as we like to say. But I think as we develop and grow up as a political, I don't want to say an agenda, but but it is an ideology. I mean, it's the ideology of Washington is not considered the interest of the American working class as its priority. And the American workers have been left behind. Um, and we got to address that. And I think it's very evident in this bill. I mean, if we believe border security is important for the American worker, and you're spending $118 billion and $20 billion is spent on border security and $98 billion is spent abroad in what I call the foreign policy hodgepodge, then how is that America first? But that's anti-America first as far as I'm concerned. And America first is not pure. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to have to, to learn as it goes, just like conservatism does or liberalism um, does. But I do believe that the populist energy that created America first could have birthed uh, a political agenda and ideology that will dominate the GOP for the balance of my lifetime. I really and truly um, believe that. We began today's show um, bringing the news early this morning that um, our country music icon uh, passed away. Toby Keith died at the age of 62. Um, Toby Keith wrote one of the great ah, anthems of the post-9-11 world, and we felt, instead of us paying tribute to Toby Keith, let him do it in his own words. American girls and American guys will always stand up and salute. We'll always recognize when we see your glory flying. There's a lot of men dead. So we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our heads. My daddy served in the army. We lost his right eye, but he flew a flag out in our yard. Till the day that he died, he wanted my mother, my brother, my sister and me to grow up and live happy in the land of the free. Now this nation that I love is falling Sucker punch came flying in from somewhere in the back. Soon as we could see clearly through our big black eye, man, we lit up your world like the Fourth of July. 
Sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list. And the Statue of Liberty started shaking her fist. And the eagle will fly. Toby Keith, dead at 62, far too young. Um, I mean, I told Rev this morning, I remember when I saw Steve Jobs at one of these, I don't know. I mean, it, it, was, it was kind of a leaked photo, and you just felt like you were watching a man die. When I saw Toby Keith sing Don't Let the Old Man In at one of the recent music awards, I just had the same feeling. I'm not a doctor. I'm not qualified up close nor from afar to give medical diagnosis, but it was obvious to me that Toby Keith was a very, very ill man um, but crammed a lot of living in, uh, in 62 years, it would be an appropriate time to give the old Keith Oberman, you know, Jeff Blouse of the Atlanta Braves his day to day, but aren't we all, I mean, we're all day to day. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.